Today we're going to listen to over two hours of Andy Warhol. Hope you're having a lovely Labor Day. Stay tuned for some interesting guests coming up this week on the White Hot Magazine Art World Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Becker. White Hot Magazine, one of the world's leading platforms and institutions for contemporary art. Visit us online at whitehotmagazine.com and follow us on social media. superstar Andy Warhol in 1987 shocked friends and family and threw the art world into confusion. His house jam-packed with artworks, antiques and untold mountains of junk was immediately declared off-limits. His studio also overflowing with unfinished paintings, artworks, antiques and yet more junk was similarly barricaded against scavengers, friends, and even his family. It was still only 7 a.m. on the 22nd of February, 1987. The value of his estate was later estimated at $600 million. In 1994, the Andy Warhol Museum opened in his hometown of Pittsburgh. Much of Warhol's massive collection of the precious and the everyday is now housed here. A legacy of hundreds of thousands of things, including 600 time capsules and 4,000 audio tapes. Fifteen years after his death, the archaeological dig, prompted by all this evidence of a life left behind, is still uncovering clues about the elusive Andy Warhol, the citizen Kane of the art world. He certainly knew that he was keeping things, that at some point somebody was going to then take this material and start looking through. People don't save letters for no reason. They believe that their lives are important. We haven't found the Rosetta Stone or we haven't found the Rosebud yet. I do think it is there. Truman Capote once famously characterized Warhol as the Sphinx without a secret. But to believe that is to believe all of this adds up to nothing.
the real Warhol, so to speak, I think was Andrew Warhol, who was born and died, and was of a certain person of ethnicity, had religious beliefs, etc., etc., etc. That was reality. The created Andy Warhol, I think, is someone, in a sense for me, who's in the artwork. But even there, it's hard to pin down a single Andy Warhol, because he made so many different kinds of work. He served as soup cans, Coke bottles, and Marilyn Monroe as fine art, and immortalized everyday images of death and disaster in America before moving swiftly on to avant-garde filmmaking. He managed the rock group, The Velvet Underground, and having become the hippest guy in New York, turned up for work on the 3rd of June, 1968, only to be shot by one of his entourage. Even that didn't stop him. He then went through several other transformations, into a publisher, a society portrait painter, an author, a TV chat show host, and eventually into an international art star. But who was Andy Warhol? On his journey from Andrew Warhola, he would not only change his name, but also customize his personality to create a mechanical, factory-produced brand name that would embody the celebrity and consumer culture of the times. Andrew Warhola was born in Pittsburgh in 1928 to Slovakian immigrant parents, Julia and Andre. He was the youngest of three sons, his mother's favorite. The city at that point was very much a blue-collar town, smoky and dirty. The skies were always orange at night from the steel mills, and the rivers were yellow. And, uh, and noisy. You would hear all this noise coming from the mills. You get these people, the hybrids, like I'm a hybrid, as Andy was, people who come from working class background, who were second generation, in this case, first generation immigrants in this country, who came from steelworkers' families. There wasn't a book in the house. Our economic background did not suggest that we would be capable of any kind of larger enterprise in our life. Our fathers were both steel workers, so we had that Latin common. And we were both, well, I'm Slovak, so we were both from the same ethnic background. He came from this very odd part of Europe, I mean, where Hungary and Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia meet. I may be wrong geographically, but I mean, it is a sort of lost area. And they'd have their own language, which was called Russian, which isn't Russian and it's not Hungarian. And it's very, very, very primitive. And it's very empty because almost everybody left. It was so poor. This is the tiny village of Mikova in Slovakia, where Warhol's parents originally came from. Only a small well remains on the site of the family home. It's a very curious part of the world because the village is a, a, a Catholic and the towns are Jewish. And um, a lot of people went to Pittsburgh, which is, of course, where Andy started his life. The Warholers were Catholic, and Warhol's mother was extremely pious. So was Andy, although later, he was to carefully edit out any religious commitment 
from his public image as New York's art superstar. He never visited Slovakia, Mikova, or the village church, where this rare recording of his mother singing was made. Before Andy was born, his father followed the well-trodden trail to Pittsburgh to find employment as a construction worker. It would be five years before he would send for his wife, Julia, to join him. This is all that remains of the poor immigrant homes where Warhol was born. Poles, Lithuanians, Slovakians and Italians made up the young Warholers' insular community, where English was rarely spoken. He was really shy, but I guess over the years when he started having, uh, right before he passed away, he, he, was, uh, he could really ask you all kind of questions, and he, he, uh, he overcame the shyness. I don't know how, but I think that stems from our heritage, our people are basically, you know, quiet and just, uh, they let, let the other people do the talking, or, you know, and they just, uh, I guess some of that, it just rubs off on you. Andy's oldest brother, Paul, still lives on a farm just outside Pittsburgh. He often had the job of looking after the sensitive, withdrawn and delicate Andy. I took him into school the first day and waited for him, and Andy didn't come out here. I says, I don't know what happened to Andy, and here he had, had somebody had smacked him, some little girl had smacked him, and he come running home from school. After he was smacked by this girl, he was afraid of school. We moved into Oakland, and it came time for him to go into school. He was six years old, but my neighbor picked him up and Andy was crying. Oh, he was kicking, he was screaming. He didn't want to go back to school. And he developed this, uh, unfortunately, he got that nervous disorder, being very fidgety, you know, I mean, just moving his hands and, you know, Andy had developed the neurological disease St. Vitus Dance, and as a result, spent the best part of his eighth year in bed. His mother gave him colouring books to fill in. It was a formative year. My father was away a lot on business trips to the coal mines, so I never saw him very much. My mother would read to me in her thick Czechoslovakian accent as best she could. And I would always say thanks, Mom, after she finished with Dick Tracy, even if I hadn't understood a word. She'd give me a Hershey bar every time I finished a page in my coloring book. 
I used to bring him a lot of magazines, uh, a lot of movie star magazines. He was very fond of that. I used to have to send away and get him pictures of the movie stars. One special occasion, I wrote to Shirley Temple, and she sent them an 8 by 10 photograph of her. And it had to Andrew Warhola from Shirley Temple. And I think, uh, I, I think it's done at the museum now. So this is uh, a scrapbook that Warhol kept beginning in about 1940, when he was about 12 years old. And actually, a lot of the photographs are dated. And on this first page, uh, there's this particular photo, which is really fabulous. It's uh, an autographed Mae West photo, which is signed to Andrew Warhola. This is Alice Fay, who was one of Warhol's favorite movie stars. Eleanor Powell and Ann Miller. Greetings from your dancing friend. Now, this is the Shirley Temple page. <laughs> and you can see, if you get the light right, I don't know, tell me, can you see it? Yep. He's practicing her signature. His first collection really was autographed photographs uh, of, you know, Hollywood stars, especially the child stars like Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney and Shirley Temple. I mean, he was just so much into that. And, and that's what his work became uh, about. As a child, a sickly little child in Pittsburgh, he was hooked on those Hollywood fanzines, you know. He was, he was one of those people out there who really believed the MGM publicity machine, you know. When Andy was only 13 years old, his father died of peritonitis, brought on by industrial water poisoning. The same year he drew this unhappy self-portrait. His father left behind a small trust fund, which was now put towards an art education for the talented youngest Warhola. In 1948, as part of his art training, Andy worked with the team on window displays for Horn's department store in Pittsburgh. He was to continue his love affair with window dressing, which he saw as art throughout his career. I refer to Andy as the patient saint of window dressers because he was one of the few people that was actually very proud of being a window dresser. Some of the other artists at the time who were involved in window display weren't comfortable with having their names associated with windows and they used pseudonyms, which I think speaks to a very high degree of window dressing shame. Andy wasn't the first, he was just actually the best because he threw himself into it with the same creativity that he addressed everything else. The thing that Andy Warhol loved about window display was how public it was. It really is the most democratic form of expression. Even if somebody doesn't have a television, they can go look at shop windows. In 1949, the ambitious Andrew Warhola decided to move to New York to pursue a career as a commercial artist. Mother says, Andy, I don't think you should go up there. You know, you're too young to go up. He says, Mother, the future is New York City. After he settled in Manhattan, Warhol sent for his mother. She was to live with him there for most of her remaining life, taking care of her talented but vulnerable younger son, who spoke to her either in Polish or Czech. 
She barely spoke a word of English, and to outsiders, their mutually dependent relationship seemed strange. You know, he'd lived with his mother for years in that house on Lexington Avenue. It, people would say it's a little like psycho, you know. <laughs> if you didn't know, you'd think she was the cleaning lady. I mean, she really never said much. She was shuffling in and out of rooms with a broom or something. She was a, a wonderful, kind woman and adored uh, Andy. Life revolved around Andy. One morning I asked her, I said, oh, I said, did you sleep well, uh, Ms. Warhol? And, uh, and I could understand her perfectly. And she says, no. I said, oh, I'm sorry. She says, I sat up and watched Andy sleep all night. She didn't sleep herself. And I thought, how strange. And then again, I thought, I wonder if you got that idea of the movie Sleep, watching someone sleep. Warhol was to make the movie Sleep in 1963. It starred his boyfriend, poet and performer, John Giorno. She apparently wanted to meet me because she had heard me, you know, I guess she heard us kissing in the hall. I mean, I, then I sort of became really paranoid when I was drunk leaving the house and would give a hug or a kiss. And I said, oh, my God, she hears us. That's why she wants. So he took me down and he said, Mom, this is John. And I'm, I was <laughs> Mrs. Wall. <laughs> and then they started talking in Czech. He did like what, what all of us do in a situation like that. You hide from her anything that would disturb her. As an illustrator, it was the unusual quality of Andy's drawing style that attracted the attention of clients and other artists, like Peter Blake. What literally attracted me was a certain kind of fluid, broken line. I mean, it's a way of drawing. You know, Matisse draws in one line. Warhol made the pen stutter. I mean, it was a searching line that stepped back. So, so just technically, that's what appealed to me. And I collected his work. I was working in a... Um advertising agency where they uh, used his work and everybody in the studio, and it was a very good studio, couldn't figure out how he did this blotted line. Everybody had their idea, wax paper, all kinds of theories. So uh, not until I worked for him did I uh, discover, and it was extremely simple, he just simply took a piece of uh, Strathmore paper and folded it in half, and on the left he would do the pencil drawing and then take pen and ink, uh, indie ink, and then uh, slowly go over the line and blot it over and then go back and forth to get a perfect register. And so in the end, we would have the um, copy, more or less, and then the original we would tear off and throw away. He always had this desire to um, work out a method where he would not be having to draw every single thing. I mean, even that blot idea was a way to do multiples. Everything you did, you, know, you always did it the easy way, the most obvious. Uh, nothing was uh, complicated in his life, actually. Everything was just very simple. Joan Fenton became art editor of Seventeen magazine the same year Warhol moved from Pittsburgh to New York and gave him one of his first jobs. It was something that perhaps had particular appeal for an artist who thought of himself as an ugly duckling. He left his portfolio and when I saw it I thought oh, I've got just the right 
just the right job for him. And it was a, a story we were doing on allergies. And so, because his line was very scratchy and a little bit upsetting. And when he came in, I thought, oh, here is a very, you know, strange young man. He will fit in exactly, you know, he'll understand what to do. Uh, and what I did was I gave him a double page spread of all the things that make you itch and scratch and sneeze and cough and he understood. He had a skin problem. I mean, it was very obvious. He was so pale and very often he'd get these blotches uh, from the sun and uh, he couldn't go out in the sun, but uh, that sort of also added something to his personality. But it was unfortunate. Uh, he was painfully shy because of that. He had white hair and white skin, very pale, pale, pale. But evidently the thing that bothered him was his nose. And I, I mean, the fact that he should go and have cosmetic surgery and be, you know, and be worried about his nose when his appearance was really not ordinary. At one time, the way my nose looked really bothered me. It's always red. And I decided that I wanted to have it sanded. Even the people in my family called me Andy the Red-Nosed Warhola. I went to see the doctor, and I think he thought he'd humor me, so he sanded it. And when I walked out of St. Luke's Hospital, I was the same underneath, but I had a bandage on. Andy's first real studio in New York was in a strange location. The exotic cafe Serendipity, opened in 1954 by three gay men. Only minutes from Bloomingdale's, it quickly became the haunt of Hollywood stars such as Cary Grant and Grace Kelly. He would drop in for the legendary desserts. These are Andy's drawings of one of the owners, Stephen Bruce, an early infatuation. It was very obvious from the beginning that he adored men and he always surrounded himself with the most attractive people in New York. He had a very bulbous nose when I first met him and he probably uh, did have some plastic surgery. And I think the feeling came, he was surrounded by beautiful people, a little bit of that would rub off on himself. And I think he used his drawings to attract people. He would come from an advertising agency with a group of drawings that he had to do, and he would ask his friends to fill in and color them with indie ink colors. Fill this in, and I'll treat you to lunch. That was the tone that he set for the rest of his life, being surrounded by people, having help with his artwork. Andy's first assistant was, in fact, his mother. Apart from signing his work for him in her own style of calligraphy, she was to write the poems for his book of illustrations, 25 Cats Named Sam and One Blue Pussy, published in 1955. She also did the drawings for another publication, Holy Cats, in 1957. She was a lot of fun to be around. She was amusing without trying to be amusing. Uh, when he was doing the I. Miller shoes, she would try to she would try them on, for instance, and uh, of course they never fit her. 
It was Andy's illustrated ads for I. Miller shoes that sealed his reputation as a hot new commercial artist. The contract also had personal appeal for Andy. He clearly had a thing about shoes. Well, this was one box of them anyway. And they're all neatly wrapped. We have dozens and dozens of pairs of these like really great Halston Disco high heels. We could spend all day looking at Halston shoes, but we won't. <laughs> and his shoe fetish didn't stop at high heels. He loved his own footwear as well. And these we've organized a lot better. He loved these shoes. <laughs> Even by the color of that paint, I mean, like that green color that's right here, that looks like the background color of the mint Marilyn Monroe. He didn't really throw away too many things. I doubt that he kept literally everything, but it really does seem like it. These shoes would have been 25 years old at the time that he died. I was sitting in a chair when all of a sudden Andy was on the floor with his hands on my feet. One thing led to another and he was licking and kissing my shoes. I had always heard he was a shoe fetishist all those years designing shoe ads for Henri Bendel and Bonwit Teller. There was Andy Warhol on his hands and knees kissing my shoes and licking my shoes with his little pink tongue. This is the home of Teddy and Arthur Edelman, makers of exotic leather products. Impressed by Warhol's drawings for I. Miller shoes, they tracked him down to help promote their own highly distinctive product. We just loved him. Well, he certainly looked very strange when he came to our office because the people who worked for us were old type leather people. And in walked Andy with his Jackson Pollock shoes and his black suit and this wild hair and the white face. And people thought, God knows who this was. That was one of the first things he ever did for us. A snake shoe we wanted to promote. Snakeskin for shoes, for ladies' shoes. He took a snake and he drew a shoe out of it. He had a very literal way of approaching things. If you say you want a, a snake shoe, he made a snake shoe. I mean, he took it always to its base, which made it, I think, incredibly exciting. At one point, it was the reptiles were almost becoming endangered species, and we were out of animals. <laughs> and we did a contract with a vinyl company to try and create the look of what we did. And we had the idea of calling them genuine fakes. And we called Andy in. Andy, we need genuine fakes. So he did an elephant with zebra stripes. <laughs> he did a double-bodied kangaroo. He did everything, and everything was, it's a genuine fake. One of his classmates come up to me one day back in 1952, just out of the clear blue sky. He says, did you know your brother's a genius? And how do you take something like that? I, I says, I don't know. He was so successful as a commercial artist. I mean, probably as a very young man, he must have made um, 
easily $65,000 a year. Andy, we want to do a Christmas present for our customers. And they all have children. We're thinking of a coloring book. And we tan snakes, lizards, alligators, buffaloes, cows, everything. Could you make a coloring book for children to color? He came back with the most sensational oversized coloring book, which we printed about five, 500. 500. Although he never laughed and smiled, he had a very good sense of humor. If you look at the drawings, they're hysterical. I mean, they are basic funny, not just fancy funny. But Andy's ambitions were moving beyond commercial art. He wanted to be a real artist and began transplanting his illustration style onto canvas. In 1952, he landed his first exhibition, Drawings of Truman Capote, but it was deemed derivative in style and faintly perverse. Those drawings have long since disappeared. Vito Giello had started a gallery in 1954 called The Loft where commercial artists could exhibit their illustrations and design work in a new context. Warhol was happy to join a band of would-be fine artists by showing there. However, his first one-man exhibition, which featured drawings of the modern dancer John Butler, was greeted by the critics with the same disdain that was meted out to all loft gallery shows. Fairfield Porter, who was a, uh, a very well-known critic at the time, he hated the show. Uh, especially Andy's things. The reaction was that uh, he was just simply a commercial artist. He shouldn't be really hung on the walls uh, to, to be viewed as, uh, as fine art. Still determined to be a fine artist, Warhol continued to struggle with his potential crossover. By 1960, he was painting existing magazine ads on canvas in a style that combined the graphic, linear approach of commercial design and the drippy, gestural marks of fine art painting at the time. He gravitated to more iconic products that were quintessentially American, and then to the comic book characters of American Cold War culture. Everyone thinks of Campbell's Soup, but he did do, do a lot of uh, cartoon things. I think Dick Tracy first, and then he decided not to do those because somebody else was doing it better. In the beginning, he, he was uh, considered too close to Lichtenstein as the cartoon images, so they weren't ready to hire him right away. The new emerging American artists, like Clays Oldenburg, Roy Lichtenstein, and James Rosenquist, had to contend with the internationally renowned 
abstract expressionist movement in the States and its high-profile heroes such as Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning. When these serious heavyweight painters weren't making large-scale gestural abstract work, they were debating art and meaning and occasionally brawling over women in the Cedar Tavern in New York. They despised popular culture and all that Warhol represented. They had defined painting as an expression of the tortured male psyche, splattering, dripping, and struggling on its messy journey to a higher ground. Don't forget, at that moment, this is 1962, and everybody has been talking about painting as brushy. Like, 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 like that. It wouldn't be art if it didn't have those drips. The Why? first generation that took over for America, the abstract expressionist painters, they still were the macho men. And there still was a hierarchy. There still was a dominant way of painting. And if you didn't use the dominant way, you were considered either naive or, or provincial or what have you. So the new artists, like Andy and Oldenburg and Lichtenstein, were not the artist as hero. Painting was a straight guy's profession, you know? De Kooning and Rothko and whatever, they were completely homophobic. A gay man could not be a great painter. That, that's a matter of fact. Andy understood the dynamic there so that, that he never allowed himself to be perceived as being gay in his work or in his lifestyle. The guys who were making abstract expressionism had absolute contempt for commercial life, for, for commercial art, for uh, what you see in the supermarkets. I mean, they really loathed it and thought that they had reinvented the Renaissance, that that, that was going to last as long as the Renaissance maybe had lasted. And it was over with in 62. And by 62, a very different impulse had overtaken the art world. And Warhol was absolutely in the forefront of, of that. When he started doing the Campbell Soup paintings, of course, it, it's a, a, a kind of commercial art, but uh, this was a new era, the pop art uh, era, which uh, took everybody by surprise. What became known as pop art appeared almost simultaneously in America and Britain. It celebrated the imagery of consumer society and popular culture with a colorful, hard-edged photographic reality. British artist Richard Hamilton defined it as glamorous, expendable, mass-produced and popular. He had pioneered British pop art along with artists like Peter Blake who in some ways anticipated both the imagery and approach of the American pop movement. It changed the direction of art. You should read it in the same way that you read pop music. So those early things were, were directed at the same people that would like an Elvis Presley song, might like a painting of Elvis Presley. It was an enormous rejection of accepted values in art and finding new ways. For instance, something as simple as using the primary colors in art, it simply wasn't, you didn't. 
Although the work of both Hamilton and Blake pipped the American pop artists to the post, the States was the movement's true home, where artists found endless meaning in giant billboards, comic books, supermarkets, and a bright, optimistic, plastic future. There has to be some explanation of why all these artists started turning to very ordinary things. Maybe it had to do with the Cuban Missile Crisis, that suddenly it looked in America as though the whole goddamn place was going to be blown up. I mean, that's the way people talked. And then suddenly it wasn't going to be, and then suddenly it looked very different. In the early 60s, Handy began working with a primitive form of screen printing to produce canvases that comprise multiple images of life's little necessities, like money and green shield stamps, while still trading in lucrative commercial art to pay for them. Andy was still trying to work out how to put his best foot forward. It wasn't only the abstract expressionist mafia that was resisting pop art celebration of the aesthetics of the everyday. Andy's new paintings of Campbell's soup cans were scandalizing even his young artist friends. Mademoiselle magazine in the early 60s said uh, there's something happening and that thing that happened turned out to be the pop artist. And so they gave me a list of people to photograph and um, Andy's name was on it. And I was shocked. I, what the hell is he doing on this list? And when I went over to his studio, suddenly there he was playing rock and roll music. He was wearing black. He was wearing jeans. And he had a room full of these um, Campbell soup cans, you know, now what the hell is this? Only the flavor was changed to protect the innocent, you know. He was doing practically the same thing on canvas. I mean, I never saw the difference between his paintings and his commercial art. I was rather shocked. I mean, I love Franz Klein and Rothko and Motherwell. Uh, these were real painters. And I, th I didn't think Andy was a real painter. I've always had a conflict because I'm shy, and yet I like to take up a lot of personal space. Mom always said, don't be pushy, but let everybody know you're around. I wanted to command more space than I was commanding, but then I knew I was too shy to know what to do with the attention if I did manage to get it. perhaps preeminently among the artists of his generation, Warhol's art is thought-provoking. Though one of the thoughts you can, can provoke is bullshit. This is just bullshit. This is nothing but a soup can. But if you then, if you hold back on that and say, wait a second, why would anyone put a soup can on a work of art to have us look at it? Why would that happen? What other thoughts does it provoke? 
pretty soon you do start moving forward with real thoughts. him politically that everybody could have it if they just had a few cents. It was as good as you could get, A, and everybody could get it. He was a very political person. He was very much a Democrat in that way. I think he says, all Coca-Colas are alike and all Coca-Colas are good. He said, if you're the Queen of England, you couldn't have a better Coca-Cola than the bum on the corner. finally got his first one-man painting show on the West Coast. 32 soup cans were opened at the Ferris Gallery in Los Angeles in the summer of 1962. In the 60s, we were all looking for the next new thing. I had been waiting for a long time for what I called the return to reality out of abstract expressionism. Uh, we were all third-generation abstract expressionists, and uh, everybody was screaming, the critics, everybody was talking about the return to reality. It was at the Ferris Gallery. I was shown a soup can and, and, a, and a cartoon by Lichtenstein, and I just flipped. They said, what do you think of this? And I flipped. I said, well, this is the return to reality. But it was a reality that seemed just as facile and shallow to the L.A. critics as it had to the New York art world. They rejected what was, in fact, a highly personal work as nothing more than a con. The Ferris Galleries was advertising his paintings for $100 a painting, you know. Donna Street, another gallery, intimidated him by putting a camel soup can in a window. And why pay, why pay hundred dollars for for a painting when you can buy the camel soup can for fifteen cents? Everything that he did actually was part of his life from the time he was youngster. Mother always served camel soup, you know. I mean, uh, she always had a good supply. Andy was fond of chicken noodle, you know, chicken rice. Even when they were living together in New York, Andy's mother continued to serve Campbell's soup to her successful son. At nine o'clock in the morning, he would, she would have uh, breakfast for him. And then at 12 o'clock sharp, she would have uh, Campbell's soup for him and a sandwich. Uh, I'm sure that's why he picked uh, the Campbell's soup can, because it, it was uh, an image in his mind uh, that's something that she uh, gave him every single day. Warhol said about Campbell's soup, you know, well, I ate it for lunch every day of my life. And the idea of seeing it as the embodiment of uh, nourishment, of warmth, 
of comfort. For Warhol, it, it really meant a lot. And I think only somebody who had a very vivid sense of the precariousness of life might have felt that way. I mean, he was pretty poor after all. They didn't necessarily know where the next meal was coming from. someone who used everything, every experience, every extra bit of paper. I think that sense of efficiency, and I think working, you know, in a working class family, you know, you didn't have the luxury of tossing out half the pie that was uneaten. You didn't. He was efficient. Everything was done with a purpose that either was for the moment or providing the backdrop or the footnotes or the preparatory notes for the artwork, and we see him coming back to things. Certainly, Andy was never to abandon his favorite brand of soup. Benjamin Liu was his last painting assistant in the 1980s, and one of the very few people ever to be invited inside his home on his 66th Street. Andy walking, Andy tired, Andy take a little snooze. Andy said, um, I'll make some lunch for you guys. I thought, that's amazing. And you know what he made? No. Well, go on. Now, I thought he was playing a joke on us. He opened a can of Campbell tomato soup and heated up and gave us some bread. Now, I said, you know what? You don't have to play the pop artist. This is the off hours. It's like, you know, but then he did. I guess he really eat that stuff. But considering he's healthy. Yes, he did. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I was like, you gotta be kidding. I mean, with someone like Pollock, here was someone who sort of gave his life over to his art in one way, but when he wasn't painting, he was extremely ordinary. I think Warhol was never ordinary. Warhol became the American favorite favored by Americans because of what he gave them. He gave them what was theirs. It wasn't something they had to be educated about to be able to appreciate. The, even the aesthetics they could get. Warhol can be taken in at a glance. He really can. The opposite, let's say, of Jackson Pollock. Those pictures cannot be looked at except over a long time. Pollock is a time-consuming artist. It takes time to see what he's doing. It's that that Andy turned against. The minute you look at them, what they are is clear within seconds. This is not true of most artists, good, bad, and indifferent. He realized that people had a hard time looking at those grand pictures, like what, what am I supposed to look at? What are they about? How are they made? And what's this texture? And I don't get it. And, and then he said, okay, what do people do? They read the newspapers and they read magazines and they look at hoardings and they get it right away. What's the old adage with missionaries? Um, you know, feed them and then bring them Jesus. And Warhol said, well, you know, if I'm gonna bring the message of art to them, I'm gonna do it in the language, I'm gonna make that language the language of art. As opposed to saying, this is the language of art, and you, if you don't get it, and, you know, up yours. He did have the wish 
to have his art beyond the small world of the art world, have it recognized, understood, and liked. Uh, and he was prepared to do what it was necessary to do to have that happen and still be art. Having turned his work from illustration into painting, Warhol now began to transform his public image from the shy, ugly duckling commercial artist into a cool, enigmatic modern painter. He was fully aware that because of the, the strangeness of his looks and, and the kind of limit, limitations he had with himself as a, as a person that he had to reinvent himself, reinvent, create a persona for himself that was already there, but he had to become fully conscious of what that persona was gonna be. And it was a kind of persona that intuitively uh, he realized that the media would pick up on. In his repackaging of himself, Warhol took his cue from Salvador Dali, often seen in New York at the time and the most photographed artist of the early 1960s. If you want to be famous, you need a definite look. So Dali had his moustache and the long hair and his cane and an ocelot. And Warhol got into this habit of being black and white. So if you saw his picture in a newspaper, black and white, and if you saw him in the street the next day, you could recognize him from the black and white picture. There's certain people in history that you can just put a few things together and that's that person, like Abraham Lincoln or Teddy Roosevelt or uh, Groucho Marx or... Uh, yeah, and Andy Warhol definitely has just a specific look. It's a very instructive case of someone who wanted something very much, which was fame, and who started out with an absolutely lucid recognition of his own limitations. Everyone said that he looked like something that came out from under a rock. He looked pale, he looked unhealthy, he looked weird. He was silent, withdrawn, he was easily intimidated himself. He was gay. He understood that he would have to make his image out of those things. That he would have to begin with them and like them, not try and get rid of them or cover them up. That was his first sort of simple masterstroke. A cool assessment of his own limitations and a clear understanding of them and a refusal to let them wreck his hopes. The new public Andy was the epitome of cool. With his shades, stripy t-shirts, leather trousers, and pointy shoes, he was chilled 24-7. Apparently too laid back or bored even to answer questions from the press. instantly recognized. Inst the work of Norman Rockwell is instantly recognized, but you wouldn't have been able to pick him out on the street. Everybody knew what Andy looked like, and everybody called him Andy. There was an all too obviously false aspect to the new Andy Warhol public persona. His thick, awkward shock of blonde hair was clearly a wig. Andy was seemingly turning himself into a genuine fake. And as his reputation and baldness developed, so did the wigs. 
we have maybe about 50 of his wigs, and they range from being just really yucky and greasy and kind of, as someone said, like roadkill, um, to the more pristine examples. He figured out a way to make it really work for him. For me, he didn't have a hairpiece or a wig or any of that. I mean, I know he did, but his, the way his hair was was such a part of who he was that it was inseparable. So it didn't matter if it actually grew from the roots of his scalp. It was him. But this is how they came to us. Now, this box may be empty, so, you know. There you go. That's how they come to us. I knew the wig guy made wigs on 42nd Street. He used to bring two green boxes in at a time of Andy's wigs. And Andy would then go cut them himself, different lengths. And then why did he dye the back of the wig down here black and a white everywhere else? And they're all two-tone, but they vary. There's, this is Warhol. Apparently, Warhol's natural hair color was brown, dark brown. Um, and then they have this sort of like a platinum gray, I guess, kind of color. But some of them are more of a brighter yellow blonde. One of the things he said was that the reason he chose those ghastly wigs for the good bit of his life was that by wearing those, you didn't notice him, you noticed the wig, and also they made him timeless. I don't know, maybe we should put them side by side, huh? So you can see the difference, like before and after. He was so concerned about his beauty or lack thereof that he said, as he wore this wig, you can't tell what age he was. Towards the end of his life, he started to formally think of them as works of art and actually framed a couple of them and was planning to do an edition, a framed edition of 40 of his wigs. An essential ingredient of the new Andy Warhol persona was Andy the machine, Andy the android, Andy the asexual creature. Andy doesn't do, he just watches, particularly when it's someone he knows, like Valerie, one of his friends and occasional shopping partners. Always oh, says uh, Valerie is giving sex lessons on Wednesday nights. Uh, and I just sort of looked at him and I thought, is he for real? He says, uh, well, I said, we'll go together and watch Valerie and her sailor. And uh, it kind of shocked me and, it, and I thought, oh my God, I don't want to get into that. So I said no, and uh, that Andy was so hurt that I didn't see him for 20 years. Andy, to me, was asexual. I mean, he didn't really, in my knowledge, have any kind of sex. So I, 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 uh, he was an observer of people. Love and sex can go together, and sex and unlove can go together and love and unsex can go together. But personal love and personal sex is bad. But I'd rather laugh in bed than do it. Get under the covers and crack jokes, I guess, is the best way. How am I doing? Fine. That was very funny. Wow. You were really funny tonight. Everybody speculated on Andy's uh, sexuality. We all thought he was asexual, but I remember talking to lovers of his, and uh, 
They said it, it was usually the same, that Andy's preference was you know, servicing guys with all his clothes on, you know, in the knees, on the knees, you know, in the bedroom with the crucifix hanging over the bed. So that's a nice little word picture. Not to put the man down, I loved him, but I'm just saying, you know, he did have sex. Andy was obsessed by sex. He just didn't want to do it. I was really only friendly with Andy from 62 to 64. By 64, there was the beginning of the, the Silver Factory, and he had gone on to other more fabulous young people to be in the, in the various movies, and, uh, and he got rid of me. I was, I was have the, dis, the distinction of the first one he got rid of. The thing I liked about him, one, I'm a gay man, and he was a gay man. I'm a poet, he was an artist. And then he symbolized for me what I found really attractive about all of the artists of that time. So on the odd occasion, when it sort of arose in whatever the context, I always said yes, because I loved Andy. It wasn't that I was getting off because we were having this raunchy, this great sex, but it was more like out of compassion for him. Warhol was moving on in both his subject matter and working methods into a form of mechanical mass production. He now replaced supermarket products with the products of Hollywood. He began screen printing publicity or newspaper images of his beloved movie stars and other glamorous American icons onto painted canvas. This was part of a conscious strategy to remove the evidence of his own hand from the process of making art. first photographic screen print tests were of multiple Warren Beatties and Elvises. Was repetition in Warhol's work a comment on modern mass production, the work of the artist as machine, or, more controversially, the reaction of someone with a compulsive, obsessive disorder to the world around them? I think it came somewhere from that Eastern Catholic thing they were in Europe. Because the church, his church in Pittsburgh, which I saw, was just covered with icons all over the place. That iconography did leave an imprint on Andy, that devotion, iconography, which Andy then added another dimension to, which was glamour. Andy took the, the glamour aspect of devotion and exposed it as what Americans do as their religion. They are devoted to glamorous icons. In 1962, this work culminated in Warhol's portraits of Marilyn Monroe, which significantly he began work on just a week after her suicide. The suicide really spoke to him in a deep way. Marilyn Monroe had a, you know, a very special relationship to the U.S. military, the sort of classic pinup girl. 
the sort of American heroine. And I think he was very interested in the idea of heroine and heroine. That the kind of all-American beauty would also be the all-American suicide was profoundly charged for him. And I think that's in the portraits. two Andes, or three Andes, or five Andes. There were also two Marilyns, and I think that's one of the things that he was trying to explore. Marilyn as the heroine, and Marilyn as the kind of uh, drug-addicted, troubled, traumatized woman. In early 1963, Warhol rented his first real workspace, or factory, as he was to later call his studios. It was in a disused firehouse on East 82nd Street. He hired the poet Gerard Malanga as his new assistant to help increase production on the number and size of photographic silkscreen works. The General Motors-style assembly line was about to begin. When Andy started getting into silkscreening, he was venturing into an area that he was really not that familiar with. I knew exactly what needed to be done because I had worked for a textile designer where the use of silk screens was being implemented for the manufacture of men's neckwear. We had one particular bookstore that had these old magazines and books, and we would be going through all this material looking for imagery to create silk screens. We would lay out what we were going to do for that day in terms of the, the painting we were going to make. And that involved stenciling off with masking tape areas that Andy and I would paint in, filling with paint. We would then apply the silkscreen on top of the canvas to actually then create, complete the, the imagery. It was a very improvised situation. We did not know what the final result would be. Sometimes we'd even make technical mistakes. So that became part of the art, in a sense. So if you look at some of these early paintings, the registration could be off uh, to a degree. But that would add to the art. Andy never rejected a painting. He reestablished things that we had lost the idea of, which is the idea of the factory, the idea that there actually were other people working with the great masters. We, as Americans, were sort of, oh, wow, they painted all those things by themselves. My God, how will we ever do anything? When in point of fact, uh, all the great European painters had their people that did in their studios and who were doing the work. Warhol's factory ethic was not only a nod to the realities of the past, it established a way forward for many artists who were to follow him. When you are making something yourself and you're completely physically involved with it, if you don't get any physical distance from it, it can end up to take the work sometimes in more of a subjective area, more of a subconscious area. And uh, art in the 20th century and now in the 21st century you know, there's a lot of interest in objective art, which demands a certain amount of distance 
from the subconscious. The idea that everyone had to do it themselves, had to paint the painting themselves, take the photograph themselves. In the beginning, very honestly, a lot of that bothered me. You'd go to Andy's studio and there'd be a lot of people silk screening. You know, it wasn't just Andy was just sort of around and supervising, saying, do this. And he would choose the image. He would, um, somebody else would make a photographic silk screen. Somebody else would print it. I suspect in many cases, somebody else would sign them. I think once I accepted that as a way of working, then I could also see the work more clearly. And they're very beautiful. I mean, some of them are extraordinary. I think any really serious artist is very involved in the uh, production of their work, and they're responsible, and they're overseeing all the details. They're really watching everything. The more I find out about the factory, usually uh, what I find out is that Andy was really on top of everything and really hands-on. I think he wanted to show everybody that he was removing himself. So there was a theatricality to the disappearance that was very important for him, I think, because one can remove oneself <laughs> quietly, but he didn't. He removed himself loudly so that the viewer would try to project him or herself into that space of that absent figure to project who is Andy Warhol. Warhol was so canny about the way in which desire worked and uh, knew that he could be much desired if there was something fundamentally absent from those appearances. And that was a way to keep the desire for the appearances going. Warhol absented himself even further with his next altogether more shocking series of works. They comprised news photographs depicting suicides, car crashes, death and disaster roughly screamed onto canvas. Mangled metal and twisted bodies replaced the colorful products and glamorous beauties of his earlier work. When you're about 15 years of age, you know, you're watching car crash films in high school because they're preparing you for your, to go driving. And, you know, you're seeing these horrible films, but you get this sense of sexuality because they're showing couples going out on Friday, Saturday nights to the drive-ins. And uh, so it's about this coming of age, a sexual coming of age, too, that these images are kind of charged with. A lot of these death and disaster paintings are based on Associated Press photographs that were used for sensationalist tabloids. These were newspapers that would run very gruesome photographs that the New York Times would never use. So a lot of these photographs came out, were basically photographs that were censored from the media. So in a kind of interesting, ironic way, Andy used these photographs in terms of filtering them back into the media. Paintings looked like photographs. So you didn't know where the art was. I didn't know what I was looking at when I saw it reproduced. That's pretty interesting because he was really bending the notion of what everybody thought painting was. Most people still will walk up and say, well, that's not a painting. That's like a photographic image that's printed on a canvas and it's painted to color. And anybody can do it. But I do think that they're hard to comprehend because they're not typical or conventional solutions to what people think painting is about. Those paintings look like a guy from another planet painted them. They're really different. And, they're, and they are 
intense and they are unforgiving. Warhol had begun his death and disaster series in 1963 with images of the electric chair in America's Sing Sing Penitentiary. His bright American pop art dream had given way to the dark American nightmare, played over and over and over and over and over and over. It was the rituals of death and destruction that we constantly recycle here in America. I mean, we find so many ways to kill ourselves recklessly. It's such an important ritual for Americans, the death thing. Not the reverence of death, or the existentialness of death, or the romance of death. Actual, physical, real death itself. <laughs> the kill. Sex, all right, you know, anybody can have sex, but can you kill yourself? Can you kill? Because then you, you know, there's nothing beyond that. You've sold everything. What he was really out to do, it always seemed to me, was defuse things. I mean, he defused the electric chair. Nobody else had ever done the electric chair, which is such a supercharged image. And somehow it's defused. It's amazing. Somehow these things don't have any menace anymore. Like Andy. No menace at all. Uh, uh, it's, uh, I can't, I'm, I can't, I'm so empty today, I can't think of anything. Why don't you just tell me the words and they'll just come out of my mouth. No, don't worry about it because we... No, no, I think it'd be so nice. Well, let me ask you some questions that you can answer. Oh, no, but you repeat the answers too. And then you made, uh... And then I made, uh... Things like... Things like... Things like this. In 1964, Andy had his first show of 3D objects in New York. It was the must-see show of that year, not least because in its mere duplicating of existing objects, it signaled an important shift in thinking about art. A certain view of art was coming to an end. The works of art have to look really different to be really different. Lots of things began to appear, which were just like ordinary objects. So it was fairly clear that you didn't know what works of art were by looking at them. That being a work of art is not necessarily something that meets the eye. They were just taking away everything that belonged or people thought belonged to the concept of art. How can something be art when something else isn't art but looks just like it? It was Andy's Brillo box that stole the show. The original packaging was itself designed by a successful abstract expressionist artist, Jim Harvey. Warhol's provocation was clear. What was the difference between Jim Harvey's box and his Brillo box? What's the weakest condition you can think of for something to be a work of art? Well, you'd have to say maybe it's got some, it's about something, it's got some kind of meaning. The Brillo box, 
by Jim Harvey, it's easy to say what that's about. It's about Brillo. What's Warhol's about? Well, at least it's about the Brillo box. Right. It's about that. Warhol himself was, after all, a commercial artist. He, he might have seen that box as celebrating Brillo. I mean, part of it, in Warhol's case, had to have done with the great success of that piece of design. I mean, look at it. Red, white, and blue, the colors of patriotism. And that white river through there of washing away dirt. I call it the transfiguration of the commonplace. That's really what he had done. He transfigured ordinary objects. He is, as Arthur Danto has made very clear, a philosophical artist in the sense that it is impossible to look at Warhol's work without thinking. You can look at Watteau without thinking. You can even look at Rembrandt without thinking. But you can't look at Warhol without thinking. We're about to look into an Andy Warhol time capsule. Not only did Warhol make use of found images and other people's technical expertise to help execute his works, he apparently even asked friends and assistants what he should do next when he ran out of ideas. The cow wallpaper is a case in point. It's actually not the image right here, but you can see that, that it's been uh, painted in with some white paint to uh, isolate the cow against a background, and then he's got some pencil crop marks in the notation up here of 27 inches. Andy had an initial idea, and then he would throw the ball, and I would run with it. Sometimes I'd have to fight tooth and nail for an image. In the case of the cow wallpaper, Andy hated that cow. I forced it on him. We speak with people who worked with Warhol, etc., or Confi Nassim Warhol. Many of them, especially after a drink or two, will say, well, you know, I was the one who told Andy to do that. And, oh, you know, Andy once said to me, what pictures shall I paint? What subjects? And I said, well, Andy, do this. And, well, I was the one who really told Andy to move the camera. And I, I don't believe necessarily that those were total lies, but it's interesting how post his death, all of a sudden there's collective creativity. We had lunch once, and he warned, this is so ironic, uh, when I started to become a photographer, and he said, um, um, be always um, guard your ideas because they will, your most valuable thing you have your ideas and, and people will steal them. And of course, he stole everybody's ideas. I mean, <laughs> he ripped everybody off. So, you know, so he knew exactly what he was talking about, you know. Come into my parlor, you know. Back in, in 63, when we were silk screening the Elvis paintings, I had Andy superimpose some of the Elvises. And that was something that I said to Andy, well, let, why, don't we, why don't we move the screen over a little bit to create a superimposition. So we tried that, and, and Andy liked it. He chose his assistants carefully, and I think he, you know, he relied on them. I don't think that, that um, and if he didn't like what he was told, he didn't do it. I mean, I think that he was, he was so much tougher than he seemed, and so much more self-assured than he seemed. And I don't think that he had really had many moments of doubt. I loved working when I worked at commercial art and they told you what to do and how to do it and all you had to do was correct it and they'd say yes or no. 
The hard thing is when you have to dream up the tasteless things to do on your own. When I think about what sort of person I would most like to have on a retainer, I think it would be a boss. A boss who could tell me what to do, because that makes everything easy when you're working. He was interested in people. You know, he got a lot out of people. He was sort of like a walking uh, Gallup poll. Andy never just said, where will I go next? But here are two things. Which do you think is the right way to go? He had these two paintings of Coca-Cola bottles. One was very brushy. And uh, the other one was linear, almost like it would appear in a coloring book for a child. He did the two paintings. And he presented somebody with those two paintings, Emil D'Antonio, who was one of his mentors. And he said, well, which, is the, which direction should I go in? D'Antonio says, this is a piece of shit. This is where we're at. This is where we are. You go this way. Andy was just looking for confirmation. I know what made him a great artist to me was his selection of what, what was done in his studio. Elizabeth Taylor, Elvis Presley, or the soup can, or the Coca-Cola bottle, or the dollar bill, or the flowers, or the cows, and, you know, it was just his, uh, his finger pointing, which goes back to the Deschampian uh, idea mm. of the artist of the future be somebody who points his finger and it'll be art. Warhol was an extraordinarily brilliant manipulator of what was essentially one idea. He had one idea in his whole life as an artist. And he then used it, and replayed it, and redid it, and did it, and did it. He saw that what struck this shy, poor, bright, scared boy from Pittsburgh as beautiful could be made into a kind of art without any intermediary manipulation, or with a minimum of it, and that it would give a kind of immediacy that meant it was possible to look at a Campbell soup can or a telephone in somewhat the same way that one would look at the face of Jackie Kennedy in mourning. Now, that's a bizarre idea, but it was a very fresh idea. He saw its philosophical resonance. He saw and felt its erotic resonance. He saw and felt its visual panache. And that, for him, was a tremendous liberation. And it made a career possible. Oh, but that, that won't last very, very long. The second program is next Sunday at the later time of 8 o'clock. Details coming up. And throughout the week of 5 to 8, uncover Andy Warhol's personal passions. Now, tomorrow at 9 o'clock, Jimmy McGovern's new drama, Sunday, reconstructs the events of Northern Ireland's Bloody Sunday 30 years ago. Coming up next on 4, though, the brand new series of Bremner Bird and Fortune. Warhol continues in the 60s with recollections of his life and powerful influence by some of the people who surrounded him, including Dennis Hopper and John Cale. Summer 1963, the sweet smell of success.
Andy took a 16mm camera with him on a 3,000 mile drive across the States to Los Angeles in 1963. One of his fellow travellers was Taylor Mead, independent film artist and designated driver. The further out west we got, the more these wonderful pop art signs appeared. And we realized that Andy was really very influenced, or vice versa. A thing was happening, pop was happening. Because the, the studios and the motels were going out of their way to make pop icons. The farther west we drove, the more pop everything looked. Suddenly, we all felt like insiders, because even though pop was everywhere, most people still took it for granted, whereas we were dazzled by it. To us, it was the new art. Once you got pop, you could never see a sign the same way again. And once you thought pop, you could never see America the same way again. Andy had crossed country to Los Angeles for his second one-man painting show at the Ferris Gallery, this time with portraits of Elvis and Liz Taylor. We had really the first pop art uh, collection at that time, and we bought Elizabeth Taylor out of that show, uh, which my ex-wife uh, kept. And uh, we had a big party for Andy in 1963. There was a huge party. Warhol not only reveled in hanging out with a glamorous Hollywood set for the first time, he also pressed gang Hopper into appearing with Taylor Mead in a film entitled Tarzan and Jane Regained, sort of. Andy always wandered around like he was sort of, he was there, present in body, but never gave you anything. I mean, never said, do this, do that, do that. And it was always other people doing it, and he was going, oh, 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 oh. I thought he was a total goof. <laughs> I thought it was ridiculous. I still do. I mean, I still think the films are really ridiculous. Hopper may have thought Tarzan and Jane was a joke, but Andy wasn't kidding. This is Anthology Film Archives in New York, the direct descendant of the legendary Filmmakers Co-op, formed in 1962 by Jonas Mikas to show underground cinema. Warhol had haunted those early screenings long before his Hollywood trip. Even though he was yet to establish himself as the Pope of Pop, he was already turning his attention to a different medium. We used to have filmmakers all the time. They're showing their work, uh, what they have done there before, and looking at each other's work. And uh, 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 only months later, I discovered that Andy was there from the very beginning. He was trying to figure out what he was going to make his first movie of. I used to drink really a lot, so I used to like to sleep the next day, you know, I'd sleep late and, and then take a nap in the afternoon and take another nap and be ready at 8 o'clock to go to a, whatever the party was that night. So I went to bed at around 4 in the morning and I was completely out and I woke up and Andy was on speed. So there he was looking at me with these big eyes, you know, and I'd say, what are you doing? And he said, John, <laughs> I want to make you a movie star. <laughs> and I said, that's great. Sleep was the first film Warhol shot in the summer of 1963. He allowed his static camera to stare endlessly at Giorno while he slept. When one three-minute cartridge ran out, he simply loaded another and carried on filming until it ran out. In its final version, Sleep runs for more than five hours. 
Of course, I knew very well what was being done in 1962 and 63. So I could not miss the, the, the uniqueness of what he was doing. Nobody else was doing what Andy was doing. Not cutting, not moving the camera, but just gazing, staring. What is sleep but the time when we ourselves, once a day, lose track of literal time totally? and move into another different time realm totally. To show someone in that time realm of sleep, in the movie camera's literal time, is actually a brilliant combination of two things at once. Because when you're looking at a sleeper, you're looking at a real body asleep, yes, but we're also looking at an experience of the world when we are furthest from real, furthest from daily reality. And he got that brilliantly. This is the site where Warhol's most famous studio, the Silver Factory, once stood. Having returned from his Hollywood trip, he decided in autumn 1963 to set up his own alternative mini film studio here in Midtown Manhattan, far away from the established art scene downtown. Artist Billy Name silvered all the walls and furniture, played La Traviata, and became factory foreman. Andy's silver dream factory very quickly became the place to go in New York, to be photographed, filmed, adored, and accepted, however strange, rich, damaged, or lost you were. When you walked in, you were being tape recorded, then you were being filmed, and you were being cajoled and jabbed and charmed and asked to become the great world star. You really were courted in a sense. We really did cater to people when they came. We treated them wonderfully as if they were special. You know, we were all camera crazy. I mean, that's why people came to the factory. People came to the factory because the cameras were running. The cameras were also running at the assassination of President Kennedy in November 1963. This put an unforeseen spin on Warhol's obsession with stardom and the American dream. If you look at the 60s and the incredible series of shooting Martin Luther King, uh, Kennedy of course, um, you have this uh, sense of abrupt violence being staged almost. Being incredibly dramatic and the lust for that drama exceeds the particular event itself. There is this sense of stardom around violent crime that becomes particularly U.S. phenomena at that time. Kennedy's shooting triggered Warhol into making a series of multiple portraits of his widow, Jackie. Based on newspaper photographs, the works comprise frozen moments of grief and past happiness. Warhol's interest 
was in the tragic heroine and survivor of the event. A Jackie the whole world could take to its heart. Not America's distant, glamorous first lady, but Jackie the beautiful widow. How Jackie? Warhol emerged at a time when the very conception of death was undergoing a change. And one of the things that I think we do well to ponder is the relationship between the rise of the newspaper and particularly the newspaper's reliance on death pictures as a way to sell the commodity. And I think he grasped that more quickly than any other artist. And he started obsessively looking at pictures of death where he saw those pictures at first, was in newspapers. So he saw them as multiples very quickly. He got it. Death had always been seen as this once-in-a-lifetime event, that each person would die once in the future. But if death was a commodity, something to be sold, then it couldn't be singular in, the, in that same way any longer. The death of Kennedy was, for Warhol, quickly followed by the death of painting as a cutting-edge art form. In 1964, he publicly announced that he was giving it up in favor of filmmaking. Painting was very much on the defensive in the middle 60s. Abstract Expressionism was finished in 1962. Painting was marginal to every other movement. Conceptual art was on top then, and that was the hot new thing. And this was Andy's way of sort of withdrawing strategically and concentrating on film. The films were all important. They were really, I mean, Warhol did, you know, like the flowers and the pillows. That was like goodbye to art. Um, especially the pillows were goodbye to art. They sort of floated away. It was, that was the end. The Silver Factory was now mainly devoted to making Andy's unique brand of home movies at the rate of two a week. Silent, static, unedited films like Kiss, Eat, and Haircut. Is that why you stopped painting? Because you hated paintings? Oh, um, no, it's, no, I, I stopped, because I guess I bought a camera and, and the camera would seem to be so much easier than the painting. Not the movie camera or the yeah. Polaroid? No, the movie camera. Andy more than proved his point with Empire, a static frame of the Empire State Building, which runs for over eight hours. First, you, you know, you watch like the de details that is, uh, you know, there is a scratch, there is a dust, some slight light changes. Then at some point after one hour or so, you give up and uh, just stare. They always went to the boundaries of a concept where nobody had ever gone before. Let's suppose what you're out to do is define cinema to find the moving pictures. You say, well, uh, you know, the pictures are moving things. Mm, yeah, well, let's try this. Here's a moving picture, and it's of something which is never going to move unless there's a cataclysm. Warhol made a film in which nothing moves. That is just astonishing, and yet it was a moving picture. So you know that if you're going to define movies, you can't begin at the obvious place. You've got to begin somewhere else. And I think everything he did is like that. According to Warhol, his films were probably better when thought about than actually seen. 
perhaps to emphasize that they were conceptual works, but they were also like paintings, part of the furniture. His things were always conceptually very sound. I can understand the idea of running something like sleep or running something like empire at a party where you don't have to concentrate constantly and see that one light come on the Empire State Building. Somebody says, oh, look, a light went on, you know, and oh, yeah, well, great, I miss it, I was dancing, you know. Like an alternative Hollywood studio boss in search of his own brand of star, or superstar, as he called his discoveries, Warhol began making screen tests. Almost anyone who came by the Silver Factory was sat in front of a movie camera and abandoned. These were his new paintings, portraits made at 16 frames per second. He felt that he had to move into film, that film was inevitable. The portrait of a person, a regular portrait, was not enough. It had to be a three-minute film of that, a living portrait to say that two-dimensional portraiture was not enough anymore. This is Tavel's screen test, one of an eventual 600. Like all the sitters, he was given no script, no props, and no direction. After setting up the camera, he often left the building, not just left the, the factory, but left the building. Uh, it's just, you don't have to do anything. Just what you're doing. Warhol sets up the camera, and it's like looking straight at you, and it's about as far as you are from me. And then uh, he turns it on, and you can hear it, because it's, you know, cheap. Cheap, uh, okay, it starts. And then everybody walks away, and you're stuck there. And your first instinct is to collect your attitude. Then when everybody walks away and it goes on and on and on and on, finally your attitude, you know, sort of dissolves. You can see what the person really looks like when he's finally bored or, you know, stops being terrified. I wrote something very early on saying that, that Andy Warhol behaved like Thomas Edison, the man who invented the camera. He just set it down, turned it on and walked away and put you in front of it. And what happened to Salvador Dali? Salvador Dali collected mucho attitude. He was like, ugh, like this. There was no way he could hold it. And then you saw it sort of crack, you know? His arms sort of went like this, and his, his mustache sort of slid down. And finally, you get this terrifying shot, you know, of, of you know, Salvador Dali sort of panic because he doesn't know what to do. I think those are very, very profound films. To ask people to stand still, rather than doing a portrait or a painting or even a photo, because you can feel the people's emotion, you can hear them breathing, and being still, naturally you never still, you know, you bite your mouth, and I think it reveals a lot about the person. You seem kind of inhuman, the movies. The it's movies. very machine-like. Oh, movie. yes. The yeah. camera's going on, you're sitting over here. Yeah. You don't have to watch the movie. I mean, it takes it all by itself. Some of the avant-garde establishment were outraged by Warhol's effortless move into filmmaking and the notoriety and press attention his films were getting, even though they too were only shown on a limited underground cinema circuit. We showed Tarzan a few times, maybe 50 or 100 people. Someone wrote the voice saying, we don't want to see any more two-hour films of Taylor Mee's ass. 
So I wrote back, I have searched the vast Warhol archives and I can find no two-hour film of Taylor Mead's ass. We are rectifying this undersight with all the uh, equipment at our command and whatever. The impish Andy immediately responded with a film called Taylor Mead's Ass in 1964, during which Liz Taylor, once immortalized by Andy on canvas, now received rather different treatment. But my ass is beautiful. He filmed it. The lighting, I mean, he did a beautiful, it looks like a, a George O'Keefe painting. It's just, it's so, quite lovely. I'm sure. <laughs> By the mid-60s, Warhol's silver factory was notorious as a hotbed of degenerate and excessive behavior. A magnet for transvestites, street hustlers, junkies, and rebellious society girls. Celebrities mixed with genuine lowlife, without the dubious benefit of bourgeois respectability to dampen the sparks. At that time also, you had your underground drug situation, but a pretty acceptable uh, up, above ground, you had your Max Jacobson and Dr. Feelgoods, and they were giving all these society ladies their, their shots, their, you know, energy shots, and nobody really quite knew that this is amphetamine and it's no good it's no goody ivy nicholson you know she's like crazy i mean she wanted to marry him they have to throw her physically out of the factory because she was so nuts about being with him and marrying him but you know he didn't really get rid of her i mean they toss her around and she'd come back in or, or else she'd take a dump in the you know the elevator and you know that would come back in if it wasn't for andy i mean these lunatics these uh, mental defectives would have no place to go I got more and more popular and found myself with more and more friends. Famous people started to come by the studio to peek at the ongoing party, I guess. Kerouac, Ginsburg, Fonda and Hoppe, Barnett Newman, Judy Garland and the Rolling Stones. It seemed like everything was starting there. At the center of the craziness he himself encouraged, Warhol somehow continued to work feverishly, apparently immune to the excesses of his wayward children. Andy always seemed to me to be at the eye of the hurricane in some way. I mean, the still center always. And there were all these terrible things or, or wonderful things or sexy things or outrageous things going on around him. But he was this still center, somehow inviolate in some way. They acted out around him, not only the kinds of things that he couldn't act out, but that he couldn't even think about. You know, Andy was religious all his life. I mean, he went to mass every Sunday. What he did was to create this open situation and allow them to behave as they saw fit. That was the weirdest kind of father to have and this utterly permissive father, but there was no doubt that he was an all-powerful father. He obviously was interested in encouraging eroticized behavior. I think that the movies have that same relationship to what is exciting and what is boring. And uh, sexuality always 
is a test for people of what's exciting and what's boring, isn't it? And to have the movie camera stare numbly at it through what is exciting and what is boring, that's a very interesting idea, intellectually. Not only were there now many mouths at the factory to feed, Warhol needed money for film stock and processing. He raised funds by selling paintings or by hustling portrait commissions out of past clients from his commercial art days, like the king and queen of leather products, Teddy and Arthur Edelman. One night, he said, I'd like to do your Teddy and your portrait. He took a taxi to a photo mat on 42nd Street, and he put us, the two of us, in the photo mat, and he said, do this, do that, he kept putting quarters in. I can't tell you how many quarters he was putting in. And I made the mistake of asking him how much this was going to cost. And whereas we usually paid him $250 for something, he said, well, this will cost $2,500. So I said, Andy, can we just have the photographs? <laughs> and we didn't do the portrait. And I'm kicking myself ever since. Andy loved the photo booth. A machine, not a person, that took your picture. At the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, archivists regularly discover photo strips of people Andy tempted into his favorite booth on 42nd Street. The, this, these four strips here are Holly Solomon, the art dealer. And Warhol did actually a really fantastic portrait of her um, in 66, I think it was. And there she is, looking like a movie star, yeah. looking, doing her best Marilyn impression. Those are terrific. Look at that hairdo. I met Andy at a photo booth place. I remember he was very specific as to which photo booth. And he left me there with all these damn quarters and, you know, I started doing acting exercises. As the master of the multiple, Warhol never made just one silkscreen portrait, but always produced several in various colors, irresistible to the eyes of any client. Solomon ended up buying a total of eight. I realized what Andy did was he made my hair the same color as the ground. And all you see is this, ah, you know. So the focus, um, I won't, you know, you use your imagination. Andy, when he's very good, it's really down and dirty Polish, Slavic, you know, Czech, whatever, taste. One of the most important shoe designers of the time was a French man called Roger Vivier. And we had a party for him, and we invited Andy. I guess Roger was thrilled. He knew about Andy and everything else. And at one point, he came over to us and said, he wants me to be in a movie. Oh, I said, Roger, do it, do it. Yes, he said but without my pants on. <laughs> in 1965, Warhol was introduced to Paul Morrissey, another independent filmmaker. Morrissey's obvious grasp of the technical aspects of filmmaking convinced Warhol to hire him for his own film projects. Uh, how come your camera doesn't make any noise? It was to prove the most significant of Warhol's collaborations to date. But Morrissey's more conventional approach to directing narrative cinema was immediately at odds with Andy's laissez-faire approach to almost everything. 
of 30 people on one side of the room and the camera was on the other side in front of them. And I said, well, what kind of film are you making? He said, I don't know. <laughs> what should we do? <laughs> then he said, but you know, I don't like to move the camera. I said, really? Well, then the camera will be the other side of the loft and there'll be all these little tiny people on the other end. And um, he said, I know, I don't know what to do. Also, he said, and I don't like to stop the camera. Well, when he said, I don't like to move it, I don't like to stop it, I realized that he needed somebody to uh, figure out what to do with the film and the camera. He couldn't direct. Therefore, he said, let's not direct. All right, let's see. He was hoping that somehow, without doing anything, something would get made. Basically, I was contracted as his uh, manager, with the distinction being that um, when you manage somebody, usually they do something. <laughs> When the hip Warhol was asked to get involved in a discotheque in Queens, Morrissey took an important initiative, suggesting that Andy should create his own club scene. When he saw the proto-punk band The Velvet Underground at a gig in New York, Morrissey seized the opportunity to put his plan into action under the Warhol banner. I spoke to him. I said, you have a manager? He said, no, we'll manage you, really. And uh, next night I brought Andy, and I said, that's who we'll manage. And he came away terrified. He said, I don't want to manage them. What am I going to do? Give them money? They have no money for rent. They don't have any instruments. No, 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 he didn't want to do it. I said, we'll figure it out. Paul was the, the, the muscle. He got things done. Fairly irascible and, and um, fast with his mouth, but everybody up there was irascible and fast with their mouth. There's a certain thing about factory people that's very difficult for me to describe. There's a certain openness and of outrageousness of, of feeling and generosity that all of this is a playground for everybody else that really you don't get from other people. Lou was familiar with that scene. I mean, Lou's hustling background had, you know, had, had prepared him for that. I mean, it's, it, it's not something that I was uh, um, comfortable with in the end. Um, I was really after the girls. Andy and his gang became a regular sight at New York parties and at the factory's favorite restaurant, Max's Kansas City, where Debbie Harry waited table. I would look at them and I would think they had sort of all been transported there from the Middle Ages or something. They really were phenomenal looking. It was sort of odd, you know, how that, that happens, I think. To go in a group, how intelligent. He never went anywhere by himself in a group because one you can break, but you cannot break six. And six hear more and see more. We were also extremely sexy. The invasion was by sheer numbers. There would be about a dozen of us. And we, we'd, all, um, we'd all be flying on methamphetamine. Max's was the most insane place in the world because you had to be a drug addict, <laughs> a model, a movie star, or look like one. The beautiful, wealthy Edie Sedgwick was a valuable new recruit to the Warhol clan. This poor little rich girl not only became Andy's passport to high society, but also his most likely candidate for superstardom. Warhol liked her so much, she fit into what he needed. She looked, you know, like the next hip girl, the next thing. She also looked like him. I mean, she had that short hair and everything. She also was rich. He loved rich. He definitely liked rich. 
He thought Edie Sedgwick would be his ticket to Hollywood and uh, directed her and rehearsed her and then the woman showed up on drugs and nothing happens. Impatient for her promised stardom, Edie eventually left Warhol, only to die of a drug overdose in 1971. She wasn't the first factory casualty. The dancer, Freddie Herco, had committed suicide in 1964. In both cases, Andy displayed no apparent remorse over the tragic death of his friends. He was a person without what is normally thought of as a sense of moral responsibility. I was startled by, by the coldness of his reaction to almost all the deaths. When Edie died, he said, oh, gee, I wonder if she left me any money. That was his initial response. When Freddie Herco leapt out of the window on an OD, he said, he said to me, oh, isn't it too bad we didn't have a camera there to shoot him spiraling down five flights? That was the instantaneous reaction. Part of this notion of I want to be a machine, it's not any kind of machine he wants to be. He wants to be a recording machine. Mm -hmm. And I think this idea of the record uh, is very, very crucial to him. And when Freddie Herco committed suicide, Andy's response was, I wish he had called me so I could have gone and filmed it. And people say, see, he just cared about, you know, how he could exploit that suicide. But I actually think that he had the courage of the statement, I want to be a machine, which is to say that if you've decided you want to kill yourself, I want to give it the dignity of an artistic record. They saw him as sucking everybody's blood, you know, and abusing everybody else's ideas, and of being a kind of vampire in that way. I didn't care if Warhol was Dracula. Uh, it's fine with me. It's better than, you know, mom and dad. Drella, they called him. Somewhere between Dracula and Cinderella. Ten years later, Andy would actually manifest this Drella personality for friend and photographer Christopher Makos and for his own instant Polaroids. Perhaps the odd-looking artist could transform himself into a good-looking woman, like one of his transvestite factory superstars, or appear as a fading film actress, plucked from the pages of one of his movie star scrapbooks, or even as one of the iconic beauties he immortalized in paint. I had Marilyn Monroe's a few, and I had uh, Elizabeth Taylor, and I had Mrs. Kennedy, all the girls. You know, it was Andy's Liz, and it was always Andy. In fact, I do think the portraits are Andy and drag. Launching Andy Warhol's The Velvet Underground was proving difficult. Paul Morrissey, had grafted the model, actress, and would-be singer, Nico, onto the group. Evidence of Warhol and Morrissey's belief in her importance to the group's success is hidden away in one of Andy's time capsules. Oh, that's that, uh, that Velvet Underground show. That's the who, what, who, who was, got paid who got, what? Who got paid what, ah, probably. Nico got $100, and yeah. the rest of the Velvets only split 100 Split 100 Whoa. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> Oh, she was more beautiful. 
May 1966, Morrissey secured a venue for the group, a vast Polish dance hall in St. Mark's Place called the Dom. For the whole month, it was home to the now legendary multimedia event called the Exploding Plastic Inevitable. Everything's been directed from the balcony at the back. All the films were shown on the stage, on the ceilings, you know. Faces like Nico's, Bob Dylan, Dennis Hopper, and then projected on top of the slides, on top of the, that, all of that is some more slides. They were completely, I mean, black glasses. They didn't look like they even wanted to look at the audience, and they just played this shit that was just so amazing. And what We detune the guitars because they distort it better. Low tech, really low tech. And then in front of them, Gerard and I did this bizarre dance. Everybody's trying to dance but they're trying to dance to all tomorrow's parties. People in the audience suddenly whip out syringes and actually shoot up, and then the cops are there, and then people are still dancing. There's more people dancing, obviously, when we're not on stage, which is fine with us. But the guitars sound really good. Suddenly, he looked like he was really on the scene. Here he was making experimental movies, and now he's managing a rock and roll group. I mean, which is, it was a really clever idea on my part to think of that. The triumph of the exploding plastic inevitable was swiftly followed by the surprise success of his movie, Chelsea Girls. Part scripted by Ronald Tavell and presided over by Paul Morrissey, this twin screen experiment was the first avant-garde film to make the variety charts and to play commercially in major cities throughout America. <laughs> Poor shut up. I don't think I'm gonna say a word. I don't think I can. That had a profound effect, I think, on college kids who saw it, like myself, because it was the first movie that dealt with drugs, that showed people taking drugs and talking under the influence of drugs, dealt with homosexuality, bisexuality, uh, you know, transvestites. Uh, it was all this stuff that had never been seen before. The success of Chelsea Girls meant that more people than ever were knocking on the factory door in the hope of making it to the big screen. Like model hustler, Joe D'Alessandro. A friend of mine said, oh, you, you ever hear this artist named Andy Warhol? He's, uh, he does these paintings of Campbell's Soup, and all I recognized was the word Campbell's Soup, and I had no idea who he was, and I said, yeah, I know that soup. He was sitting behind the camera, and he was reading the newspaper, and I think he popped his head out only one time, so the whole time I was there, I only saw him for a second when he put the newspaper down, and I don't even know if he was reading it or he was hiding behind it because he would laugh. All of a sudden, you'd hear a giggle. Basically, Paul would be the one running around telling people what they needed to be doing. A demolition order forced Warhol to leave his most famous factory and to relocate to Union Square. At the time, the scene of regular muggings and casual shootings. A member of Andy's entourage was Valerie Solanis, 
lesbian writer and prostitute. She became obsessed with the artist and with the belief that he'd intended to take a script she'd given him and make it into a film without her. On June the 3rd, 1968, Solanis turned up at the factory on Union Square, where she'd been many times before, but this time with a gun. She was about to guarantee her own 15 minutes of fame as the person who shot Andy Warhol. I heard this loud bang. When I did get out of the darkroom, went up front, Valerie was already gone, Andy was lying on the floor in a pool of blood, and I just saw him there, and I went over to him and picked him up in my arms, you know, and I started sobbing and crying, and, and, and he said, oh, Billy, please don't make me laugh. It hurts too much. I was in Italy at the time making a movie, and I just couldn't believe it. It's the first thing I thought of is if I was there, it wouldn't have happened. Solanis shot Warhol twice, the bullets passing through seven internal organs. She also wounded the art critic, Mario Amaya, who got caught in the crossfire and later pleaded with the hospital not to let Andy die because he was rich and famous. The ironies abound because he was pronounced dead twice. Um, and he talks about hearing that and hearing the repetition of it. And what that does is it transforms profoundly what death actually means and it, particularly for Warhol, it interferes with the idea of the singular once-in-a-lifetime event. One bad day was followed by another. Within 24 hours of Warhol shooting, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated while enjoying his victory at the Democratic presidential primaries in California. Andy's own dramatic moment of macabre glory literally became yesterday's news. Time magazine was going to do the cover story. Artist assassination attempt. And Andy was saying, oh no, you know, I was going to get the cover of Time for being shot. But you couldn't complain because it was Bobby Kennedy. It was so tacky to happen to you. But still you knew you had your chance and, it, and you missed it. <laughs> One of the things that I think he was very fascinated by was the actual line between life and death as a line. One of my favorite of his suicide pictures is the 1962 photograph of the man jumping from the window. There's a line that bisects the fall, and that's literally the line between life and death. The leaper is alive. We know from gravity he's going to land, right? He's going to pass through that line. And he began, I think, to really live as if uh, that line would be one among many lines that he would cross. Although he didn't make the cover of Time magazine, Andy was given a very special get well card. Silver vinyl, what could be better? 
John Voigt, who is now better known as Angelina Jolie's father. <laughs> uh, I think that's Lou Reed. I've been here too long. Uh, and this is by Billy Name. Ray two, Ray one, son, son, Billy Name, by you. In uh, a who's who in America, Warhol listed himself as having one son, Billy Name, in the mid-60s. Woody Allen. Meanwhile, other lines were being crossed. While Warhol was hospitalized, things were changing back at the factory. While he was recuperating, which was a matter of several months, Paul Morrissey took control of the factory. Uh, Paul Morrissey started editing the films. That had never been done before. He was in charge. When I started making the films without uh, Andy operating the camera like Flesh, came out so successful and I said I wonder if I could do it again and I did it with trash and it came out even better I suppose I don't know an enormous success and I realized I had some sort of strange formula going but I didn't analyze it and I just knew what I was doing I just said I'll try to do it again and then I did heat which was a very good success too flesh trash and heat were all written and directed by Morrissey but to this day are often mistakenly thought of as Warhol's movies they all starred Joe D'Alessandro, who became the factory's unlikely matinee idol and independent cinema's first international icon. Many critics and old factory friends believe that Warhol changed after the shooting, that he became a shadow of a shadow, a spent force with his best work behind him. But perhaps Andy used his shooting as a way to orchestrate the death of Warhol the 60s artist and the birth of a Warhol for the next decade. I refer to him sort of as the cardboard Andy after that. You know, the Andy Warhol, you'll sta stand up outside the theater, the cardboard cut out of him because he became really flat and the factory became flat. After Andy was shot, he suddenly was afraid of people who were crazy you know, amphetamine drag queens. Some of the old superstars would come to the factory and be thrown out. They'd be chasing after Andy for money. Paul Morrissey became the director and Andy became the producer. But I think it would be a mistake to say Andy lost his creativity after the shooting. They always say in these books, Andy was very active and interested. Then he was shot and then it was all different. Well, I was there before he was shot, when he was shot and after he was shot. He wasn't a bit different. Before I was shot, I always thought I was more half there than all there. I always suspected that I was watching TV instead of living life. People sometimes say that the way things happen in the movies is unreal. But actually, it's the way things happen to you in life that's unreal. The movies make emotions look so strong and real. Whereas when things really do happen to you, it's like watching television. You don't feel anything. Warhol now withdrew all his early film experiments. By making them unavailable, they became more desired. He was closing the lid on Andy, the avant-garde filmmaker. The essential purity of his film experiments would remain intact until sometime in the future the seal would be broken and the films rediscovered.
Andy's sensibility, you could not pin down. You could not understand what motivated the camera. Bad sound. A refusal to focus, you know, let's have two films running at once so nobody can focus on anything. Oh, oh fine. He would not change anything. It had to be on his terms. That's an artist. It had to be bad film. It had to be lousy acting. It had to be that. And so everybody thought it was a joke, but it wasn't a joke. He was deadly serious. I think it was really his films that, that made him known to a larger public. In the 60s, in America, art was still something that only a small elite paid much attention to. In fact, it was pop art that, in a way, began to popularize art. While we all knew about Andy doing Campbell soup cans and, and Marilyn and Elvis and Liz, I, I think it was really the movies that, that broadened his fame. What's unique about Warhol is that he depicted the American dream. The whole world wants the American dream. Now, what's the American dream? Prosperity, the sign of dollar, the glamour, the star, the fame, the beauty. But Warhol actually was pretty smart. He depicted the American dream and the American disasters. The atomic mushroom, uh, suicide, electric chair, of course, JFK shooting. Warhol is the child of capitalism, of American imperialism, and he represented pages of American history as is. In Europe, we have Greek mythology. The mythology here is Hollywood. Hence, Warhol had the idea that he needed superstar, even if they were untalented, to enter the American mythology. That's what he wanted, and he got it. For now, Andy settled for being the brand name on Morrissey's films. First on a Frankenstein movie, and then on Blood for Dracula, a story of a pale, weak, ineffectual Eastern European count, poisoning himself on the blood of degenerate aristocratic whores. Who or what could have been on Morrissey's mind? Distributors thought that because he was from the art world and he was connected with movies and rock and roll that there was some sort of big celebrity identity there. And in America, they just said Andy Warhol's Dracula. It wasn't Andy doing that. It was just terrible distributors. And that thing has stayed around, that it's his film, even though he didn't make it, which is grotesque. I think Paul didn't like it, that uh, everybody says it's Andy Warhol's Dracula, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, Andy Warhol's Flash. It's, I mean, we all know that Andy made the Empire State Building and other movies. And I don't know if you call that directing either, but, I mean, he invented things. In uh, that time when Andy were making movies, they were separating things, modern art and movies. Today, Schnabel, everybody makes Robert Longo, they're all making movies. But at that period, I think they didn't accept that. That maybe, the f I, I, I could imagine that the film industry said, um, no, 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 he's a painter, let him paint. Let him paint. Warhol did return to painting in a new life, granted to him a survivor of his shooting, but perhaps with a sense of being one of the living dead, like Dracula, a man with no reflection, or like a resurrected Lazarus, living in fear of what it would be like to die a second time, the next time for real.
The series concludes next Sunday at 8 o'clock. Pop art, a CD inspired by the Warhol New York era, is available in the shops from the 11th of February. To order, call 0870-1234-344 or click onto channel4.com shop for more information. Well, stay with us for some familiar faces who've had much more than 15 minutes of fame in Bremner Bird and Fortune. Next. production in every area and the legacy that was left behind. Andy Warhol once said that in the future everyone would be famous for 15 minutes. His own celebrity was signed, sealed and delivered when he was shot in 1968. But when you've survived an attempt on your life and you're suddenly out of the headlines, what do you do in the 16th minute? Warhol totally confounded expectations by starting his new life as a publisher. He launched the modest film magazine Interview in 1969 a grown-up version of his childhood Hollywood scrapbooks. Only this time, he'd get to meet the stars. The fact that he had experienced that shooting and the fact that he had seen kind of the power of fame in the media and not getting what you want, that somewhere it absolutely informed this idea of starting an alternative media vehicle that maybe would treat fame in a different way. Warhol quickly transformed Interview from a student-style review into a unique conceptual artwork. It became the ideal expression of his obsession with celebrity, portraiture, pop, fashion, cinema, and the now. He was also creating the prototype for today's celebrity-saturated magazine culture. In interview, he pioneered this idea that you do verbatim interviews and you put in the pauses and you put in the clearing of the throat and you put in the telephone call and you put in everything. The idea of the verbal portrait that is revealed while one is not conscious of revealing it. It was almost as if you were eavesdropping because Andy's idea about doing these interviews would be that everybody, you know, would go to lunch or have breakfast and it's just that the people at breakfast would be Elizabeth Taylor and Alfred Hitchcock and of course Andy himself. Interview was his baby. The very first time in my life that I saw Andy Warhol, he was standing on Madison Avenue with the pile of interview magazines on the corner giving it out. People liked the look with the color and the, and the composition. I moved in, I kind of broke new ground also working with the technique of incorporating photographs into the painting and painting on them or from them like that. He would go to parties and he'd come back and say, oh, I met somebody, we have to put them on the cover. They're going to be a really important movie star. And it always seemed, you know, you'd think, oh, he's so crazy. You know, um, it's just some cute boy or some cute girl that he's met at some party. And of course, that cute guy would turn out to be Tom Cruise. Interview wasn't only the ideal artistic solution to Warhol's need to be in on everyone's 15 minutes of fame, it also allowed him to indulge his love of business, money, and the multiple. 
He was constantly checking newsstands, you know, how's it selling, which one. You know, I mean, Andy loved all that. And here he had a product, you know, not, not a painting where, you know, you can sell one of them or, you know, but he had this product that he could really deal with in terms of, you know, thousands. He wanted every photograph to have someone holding a drink and a cigarette. Because we used to cr uh, write in the captions under the photograph, Liza Minnelli wearing a Halston dress with shoes by Manolo Blahnik and perfume by Yves Saint Laurent. He wanted it also to say, and cigarettes by Benson and Hedges, you know, and scotch by uh, Chivas Regal. So that would be two more ads we could go and try to get. Sometimes I'd go to Fred Hughes, who was Andy's manager, and say, well, you know, people say Interview Magazine's so superficial. And he'd say, well, just tell them we are superficial. We're deeply superficial. He was very on the surface, Andy, and he was sort of proud of being superficial. Fred Hughes was Andy's new manager, a snobbish Anglophile with impeccable taste and access to some of the richest people in America. He symbolized the new 70s regime at Andy's factory, with its post-Watergate, post-hippie, pro-hedonist Studio 54 ethos. The open house of the 60s now had a bulletproof door and the new factory personnel were well-educated bourgeois boys in shirts and ties. This was a new factory, open for business, but closed to Warhol's old associates. Andy now returned to painting in a big way. Throughout the 70s, he produced a large number of canvases that are only now being recognized as important works. The first of these he chose a surprising subject, Chairman Mao. The instigator of the Cultural Revolution was elevated, or demoted, to the level of Marilyn, to a wallpaper design, and subjected to endless repetition. Andy Warhol image of Mao Zedong is important part of the legend of Mao Zedong. Important part of the legend, development of the mythology of uh, Red China. Pop art was a result of overproduction of consumerism and goods. Political posters you can call political commercials, result of overproduction of ideology. Warhol's choice of subject, which had ranged from knives to guns to skulls, touched again on politics with his Hammer and Sickle series. It was just at the right moment to have done that. If anybody had exhibited a hammer and a sickle in a gallery in 1967, they would have been in hot water politically. In 1977, that symbol had retained its energy and lost its energy at the same time. It's a very typical Slavic humor. Is he serious or funny? Is it parody or travesty? We don't know, we're always confused. I asked him why he created the hammer and sickle. And he said, maybe because I'm Czech. I know that he is not Czech, actually. But what he did, he transformed this symbol, hammer and sickle, uh, in still life. Nobody represents a symbol as a still life before Andy Warhol. 
Warhol branched out even further in 1972, when he was offered a publishing contract to write his philosophy of art and life. He never actually wrote anything himself. In true Andy style, he gathered around him tax-deductible factory personnel, Bob Colicello, Pat Hackett, and Bridget Berlin, to help his monosyllabic persona find a publishable voice. The team went to work on the first chapter. I went off and wrote this first chapter, and then Andy read it to Bridget Berlin over the phone and tape recorded her making her comments about my writing. And then he gave that tape to Pat Hackett, who then typed up the tape, and as she did, edited Bridget's comments into my writing and added some of her own writing in what she thought was Andy's voice. And that became, you know, the first chapter. You couldn't just transcribe Andy because there wasn't enough there. You would have to sort of extend his thoughts in his voice. A good book. <laughs> so I think between Pat and I, we gave Andy a literary voice. Well, I've always wanted to be a comedian, but uh, I, I just wish I had better lines. He once said something that was very striking. I was writing a novel, and he said, oh, a novel. Uh, don't you need a lot of people for that? But then I realized that for Andy, you would need a lot of people. People who are extremely dyslexic like he was, they devise ways uh, of masking and hiding their dyslexia. I think his entire life was connected to protecting the liabilities he had, the limitations he had. I think it fascinated him to think his name was on books because uh, books and writing and literature or sentences were his enemy. It was something he was very frightened of. In the new factory ethos, Andy's love of portraiture was put to increasingly lucrative use. He drastically upped his production of portraits throughout the 70s, while Fred Hughes did the deals. And the going rate? $25,000 for one, or $40,000 a pair. He'd take a series of photographs. Gee, John, a little more to the right. Yeah, it's okay. And snap, 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 and that was it. And then, you know, a week later, he'd produce these amazing portraits. I never got mine. And when I would go back and ask Andy, he'd say, oh, let's do another. And he did another one, which is really awful, later. I mean, it's just, you know, it's one of my worst periods on, out of my mind. And I, you know, okay, probably the right picture. But uh, one you don't see around, very honestly. <laughs> But it was his move into commissioned portraits of society ladies, bank presidents, and corporate chieftains that began to get Warhol into trouble, both with his admirers and the critics. The stale smell of selling out began to emanate from the factory. I wouldn't say it was easy, but he definitely had his, his method, you know, with the Polaroid, and then you blow it, and then you just leave the eyes and the nostrils and the lips of even if you're 80, you look beautiful. He was so smart that way, just making everyone look gorgeous. But, you know, for me as a 20-year-old in New York, those society portraits could not interest me in the least. I could not care less about it, and I remember just going, oh, who cares about these uptown people? One such uptown person was socialite Nan Kempner. I thought anybody who could make a soup can glamorous had to be a friend of mine. About six in the morning, the phone rang. Hi, Nan, it's Andy. Picture's terrific, you've got to come down and see it. Well, that was the most conversation I'd ever heard from him. 
He did three of them, each one a different color, and I chose this one because it was my favorite. And the one, I guess, that's in Pittsburgh was his favorite because the third one, he was so cheap, he painted over it. His Marilyn Monroe and his Elizabeth Taylor are just the way they'd want to be remembered. And I hope the Nan Kempner, too. <laughs> we didn't consider the portraits art in a weird way. Like, the portraits brought home the bacon I mean, we loved art with a capital A, and the portraits were art with a small a. You'd even ask them, what's your favorite color, or which room is this going to hang in, and what colors should I do it in? But he would never let them uh, have any say about the size. I once asked Andy why he was so adamant that all the portraits had to be 40 inches by 40 inches. And he said, well, because someday I would like the Metropolitan Museum to take one of each person and put them all together as one big interlocking portrait called Portrait of Society. That's what he had in mind. Warhol will be remembered as the creator of perhaps the most extraordinary bestiary of the second half of the 20th century. And he did that both in paint and in film with the screen tests. I mean, there were 500 screen tests and there were, I think, over 600 different sitters that he did portraits of. And that's 1,100 people. That's a lot of people. Commission portraits supported Interview Magazine. They supported the films. They supported the video. And there's a great tradition in art of artists doing commission portraits of the ruling class. That was that whole thing. That he was just a society portrait artist in the 70s. He was taken, totally taken for granted. He was doing these wonderful series of paintings, a lot of which were shown in Europe and not in the United States. The art historians were you know, getting their shovels out and trying to you know, bury him alive. And the more they tried, the bigger he got. Business art is the step that comes after art. I started as a commercial artist, and I want to finish as a business artist. Being good in business is the most fascinating kind of art. During the hippie era, people put down the idea of business. They'd say, money is bad, and working is bad, but making money is art, and working is art, and good business is the best art. Warhol's public image was still that of an artist on the wrong side of the track, the ringmaster of a degenerate art circus full of freaks and transgressors. But every Sunday morning, he went to church, loitering at the back, doing exactly what no one really knew. This is his local Catholic church, where he would spend a private 20 minutes before feeding the pigeons. Only then would he indulge in one of his other Sunday vices, shopping at the flea market with Stuart Pivar, when all the real bargains were long gone. For Pivar, Andy was a frustrating shopping partner, not least because of his interest in almost anything, including what others might have thought of as junk. He felt that he was always under tremendous pressure to come up with new subject matter and new ideas, and so he had to flood himself with images and thoughts and everything, and there was no better place to do that than at the flea market, gathering material for his next painting. Andy would look at every single thing, even if there were a million of them. Uh, what would the whole, suppose, how much would the whole bowl cost? 
Both. The whole thing. All oh, of them. I don't know. You don't know? Oh. <clears throat> okay. He doesn't know. I would say, Andy, don't buy that. It's an absolute piece of junk. He would say, yes, do it. How much? <laughs> And he also thought that by buying those kind of things that it's inevitable that it'll, they'll increase in price because he, he loved the idea of making money. And one of the ways you, you could make money, naturally, is by buying cheap and selling dear. Not that he ever sold a thing in his life. And a good example of that is the cookie jars. Whenever he would see one, he would pick it up and look at it. How much is that? And someone would say, $50. And then he said, oh, they're not going up. I said, well, why does that worry you, Andy? Well, I have hundreds of them, and I thought that they were going to go up. It was an investment scheme. And, of course, ironically, it was the greatest investment scheme uh, ever. This was only apparent after Andy's death, when his cookie jar collection was sold at auction for over a quarter of a million dollars. Pivar himself was successful in bidding for some, but the majority of the collection went to businessman Jadalio Grinberg. I have cookie jar in my house that my wife bought it. None of them, no one, compared with anything he bought. Because his eye was very special. He saw art where you and me didn't see it. I was determined to buy all of them. For the first time, my wife gave me permission without arguing with me, except in one case. My wife hold my hand and say, enough is enough. <laughs> like everything in life, you buy one, has some meaning. But when you buy 120, this is part of a 120 collection. It's impressive. In 1978, Warhol and his assistant, Ronnie Catrone, produced a series of works rarely seen or talked about by the critics, created by urinating on specially prepared canvas. We used metal powder so it would oxidize and turn green, so it was really sort of beautiful. To me, they looked like Japanese landscapes. My job for a while was to go to the factory, drink two cups of coffee, have a B-complex, because I, I discovered that with B-complex it makes your urine very yellow, so I gave Andy B-complex. We're both piss shy, so we would take turns going in the back and peeing on the canvases. Catrone sometimes press-ganged people on the street to contribute to what became known, for exhibition purposes, as the oxidation paintings. Basically, we'd say, we're making these piss paintings, want to come up and pee? And that didn't work as well. Uh, I brought up a girl, and a girl squats and just makes a puddle. And Andy went, oh, there's no breaststroke. So we learned the hard way. <laughs> the oxidation paintings were in part about Andy's old Oedipal struggle with the abstract expressionists. He just used less conventional brushes. Andy was obsessed with abstract art because, in a funny way, he thought that that was real art, and what he did wasn't. 
So Andy came to me and he said, look, Ronnie, I really want to do something abstract. Think of something. I said, well, you're Andy Warhol. If you're going to do something abstract, it should be something that is something and yet it's not. And he said, well, what's that? I said, shadows. The shadows were the first time that he came out of the, the abstract closet, so to speak. <laughs> Echoes of Warhol's more carefree, outrageous silver factory days were appearing in Andy's new works. Ladies and Gentlemen was a series of portraits of transvestites, characters long since banished as regular visitors from the new business-orientated factory. More extreme was the Body Parts and Torso series, his most sexually explicit works. Male models were recruited by Victor Hugo, the flamboyant boyfriend of fashion guru Holston. Victor would go to the baths, and we started recruiting these guys. And I was chasing drag queens on the street around the same period, because we were doing the ladies and gentlemen. And Victor's at the baths recruiting these guys for the sex parts, which were called also torsos. You know, then we had the drag queens going on and the piss painting, so the place was out of control. The new factory was definitely as crazy as the old factory. Just doesn't have the reputation. In 1980, the Broadway producer Lewis Allen, for whom Warhol had previously designed theatre posters, was so amused by Andy's writings that he decided to adapt them for the stage. It was conceived as a one-man show, or a no-man show, as Allen wanted to call it. But who, or what, could do justice to the deadpan Andy and still hold the stage? Andy's saying, I, w I want to be a machine, you know. He, his famous saying about, I want to be a machine, that would be... And I thought, well, how about a robot? <laughs> how about a robot? Warhol was ecstatic about the idea, but didn't realize exactly what would be involved in creating a fully animatronic, life-size replica of himself. They put gook on and covered my ears and eyes. It was making me sick, and I had a cold and I had phlegm that I couldn't cough up. It was awful. Then they did my teeth. What he said was, oh, this is so wonderful because the robot can now can go on the talk shows instead of me, because I don't like to do that. And uh, the robot can do all that, and it can do publicity appearances. It can, you know, he was, he was fantasizing that the robot could take over all of his public appearances. <laughs> They immediately set to work photographing, videotaping, and cataloging Warhol's essential head and body movements. They asked Andy to demonstrate some of his favorite activities. Gee, that's easy, isn't it? Like talking on the telephone. On the other side, you do this <laughs> But Andy the robot was not to be. Even the best Hollywood technicians were defeated by the limited technology available at the time. Andy, the artist, was also suffering from systems failure, running on empty, waiting for something to juice him up. Beginning of the 80s, I thought he was going soft. 
and he would come in in the morning and read the gossip columns and then I would be the one, Andy, we have to paint. Andy, we have to paint. And you go, in just a minute, in a minute. I had almost become like the wife that you don't listen to anymore. Like, take out the garbage, take out the garbage, take out the garbage. Yeah, 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 honey, yeah, yeah, yeah. But salvation was at hand. A group of young artists working in New York in the early 80s had transformed the art scene overnight. They were first generation Warhol disciples. And like their guru, they embraced fashion, music, and pop culture. Only this time with a dash of street. Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, Kenny Scharf were all Warhol babies, clamouring at the feet of the Pope of Pop. This is the studio of Kenny Scharf, who exhibited alongside his hero in the 1980 group show New York, New Wave. Scharf customises anything that stands still for long enough. He even managed to turn Warhol's ever-active camera into an artwork. It's flattering to have a group of young artists that are, in a way, following your footsteps if their art comes from something you did. I mean, what is better than that? His younger artist friends kind of helped him start to be, you know, experimental again and taking some risks. Warhol began working on collaborative canvases with some of the artists, such as Jean-Michel Basquiat, even though Andy was scared of him at first. In a sense, it was like a combative kind of thing. Uh, Andy would do something, and then Jean-Michel would come in and cover it over and paint over it. He said, but that's my best thing. <laughs> you just paint it over. You know, and it was like, you know, and then Andy would come back and do something. And this kind of wonderful combative kind of spirit, uh, what a joyous thing, and it's so strange that they died, what, a year apart or something? Predictably, the critics savaged the resulting exhibition of their two-man canvases. Andy weathered yet another storm, but Basquiat fell at the first emotional hurdle, and their friendship disintegrated. Basquiat was to die of a heroin overdose in 1988, and Keith Haring of AIDS the following year. If Warhol's paintings were badly received, he was also failing to expand into other media. Vincent Fremont had been developing various formats to create a niche for Andy on television, the last frontier, and in many respects, the perfect medium for the art celebrity who once confessed to loving everything he ever saw on TV. Andy's idea was to do a TV show about fashion. Oh, a show about fashion? No one's gonna wanna see that. This is how insane. They said, oh, why don't you go do something else? What did we see a few years later? That's all you see. He loved fashion shows, and every time we went to a fashion show, we would say the same thing. Oh, God, Bob, this is so great. Why can't we make this into a play? And you'd say, well, it is a play, Andy. They're just walking down the runway, and here we are watching the play. Oh, I know, but we should, can't we get this on Broadway? We're working on an idea of people sitting at a dinner, film a dinner, you know, tape a dinner for a TV show. And lo and behold, few months later, it showed up on television. Not with us, though, mind you. They made all these little shows based on our ideas. An emerging MTV did commission a show called Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes. Its flip, restless approach to all the arts now makes it look suspiciously like the forerunner of three-minute culture. Andy wasn't only appearing on TV. 
he was also modeling on the catwalk. It was during a fashion shoot in February 1987 that an age-old gallbladder condition suddenly became critical. Warhol was paranoid about going into hospital after his shooting and always said that he'd never survive a second visit. He tried to keep in good health and resorted to crystals to ease his pain. But on the 20th of February, surgery became the only option. He stopped working for the first time in a decade, checking himself into the New York hospital under the name Bob Roberts. The operation was routine and successful. But during his recovery, something went wrong. No one noticed, and Andy quietly died. There was this fear of him going to the hospital. He had this feeling. No one really knew he was in the hospital because he didn't want anybody to know. And that was it. And then the, you know, the worst, the worst uh, case scenario is, I mean, I, I actually had this conversation with Shelley about 2 o'clock in the morning, was the fact that he may not come out alive. And then the worst case scenario happened. You know, 6.15, you get the phone call. An autopsy later revealed that Andy's lungs had flooded and he had drowned around 5 a.m., alone, unnoticed, and undocumented. He was 58 years old. In the early hours of the 22nd of February, 1987, Andy's studio on East 33rd Street was barricaded in anticipation of the chaos that might ensue when news of his death reached friends, family, associates, and the press. Fred Hughes, along with Vincent Fremont, and Andy's lawyer, Ed Hayes, then went to Andy's house. It was Hughes who answered the phone when Andy's brother, John, rang that morning for his usual chat. He says, uh, can I speak to Andy? Andy's dead. Andy died, you know, real crude, you know. Andy's brothers immediately flew to New York and went directly to his house on East 66th Street. I run upstairs and saw how they were going rooting through the place. And I says, who are you, who are you, who are you, you know? I says, what do you call this, you know? I, hell, they must have been there since 7 o'clock in the morning, piling up the stuff, you know. Andy's will, five years out of date, left $250,000 to each of his brothers. His estate, however, was later valued at $600 million. We miss him. Yeah. Didn't uh, realize he was that famous. Sometimes, you, you know, it hits you. Andy's memorial service took place at St. Patrick's Church in Manhattan on April Fool's Day. It was attended by over 2,000 people from every conceivable corner of the culture. 
for art historian and friend John Richardson, it was an opportunity to put the record straight. That's what I tried to do when I did my eulogy, to concentrate really on his faith, on his Catholicism, which I think everybody had left out, and which in, to my mind was one of the most important components of Andy's character. Never take Andy at his face value. The callous observer was in fact a recording angel, and Andy's detachment, the distance he established between himself and the world, was above all a matter of innocence and a matter of art. Very special morning. I had to go out in the sunlight and have a cry after. But this was Warhol's memorial, and not all sniffles were followed by tears. This woman is next to me, and she goes, <laughs> Well, I took my little hanky, thinking she was crying. She was doing cocaine. The souls of the just are in the hand of God, and no torment shall touch them. After his death, it was discovered that Warhol had been engaged in a vast series of religious paintings based on Michelangelo's Last Supper. In these works, Warhol had returned both to hand painting and to an almost obsessive level of screen printing. When theologian and art historian Jane Daggett Dillenberger first stumbled on them, the paintings had not yet been catalogued. They now constitute the largest body of religious works by any American artist. This became a, a kind of obsession with me. They were vastly larger than I had imagined, and there were so many more than I had expected. The results are, are very thoughtful and challenging, I think. But are these vast paintings conclusive proof of Andy's truly religious nature, or is Christ merely a tragic icon, like Marilyn or Jackie Kennedy? Perhaps the Last Supper is just another business lunch at the factory. Maybe the answer lies in this camouflage version. To me, that's one of the most profound of Warhol's paintings, and in a way, the most indicative of his own personality. There was a great anxiety in him about religion. Andy went to church, but he wouldn't go to confession. And so, in a way, this was a barrier to him religiously. And that there's something of that meaning, I think, in it, too. They are, in a way, I mean, they're about his faith, but he's somehow exorcised the sacred nature of them. His cool would have been blown if he'd made them look sacred or made people want to go into ecstasy. I mean, that's the last thing in the world he, he wanted. And there's no question of piety, which, is, which is, I think is, is what's so good about those paintings. But here he is, the man who immortalised Campbell's soup, waiting table at a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving Day. Ever the celebrity groupie, 
Andy, the Pope of Pop, had to have met God's own Pope, John Paul II. Well, in 10 years, I've seen Andy angry once. And he was doing an interview with a French woman. And she said to him, so it's been said that all that you are is on the surface of your paintings. And Andy just went, mm-hmm. And that you don't believe in God or anything like that. It's just all surface. And Andy turned beet red and got furious and said, I never said I didn't believe in God. Of course I believe in God. And got really mad, lost his cool, and we all looked at him like, whoa. If religious paintings had a religious dimension, it was only in the way in which shoes and Brillo boxes did. You're no longer in the presence of this divine masterpiece. You're in, in the presence of something that can be repeated and repeated and repeated, repeated and repeated and repeated. People tend to think that you get more religious as you approach death. I think he was always as religious as he ever was. Whatever his beliefs, even Andy couldn't take it all with him. It took 10 days to auction his personal collection. 3,500 lots, consisting of over 10,000 items. The largest single sale held at Sotheby's since its founding in 1774. This is the Riverside penthouse of Lord Archer one of the collectors to benefit from the gold rush that followed Warhol's death. I miss Rothko completely, and I was determined not to miss Warhol. By then went rather silly and went wild and got 200. <laughs> I started buying them everywhere. Everywhere I went, I had to buy the Warhols that were available, Australia and London and, and New York and San Francisco. Everywhere they came up, I was buying them. He's the only artist I've ever bought as an investment. I was being a bit vulgar then. I was buying to sell. It was an act of folly, but it was fun. No regrets, no regrets. I do have the green Diana, big one, big, big picture. That's hidden at the moment. And I guess I suppose in the end I'll sell that as well. And then there was all the real estate to sort out. In 1972, Warhol and Paul Morrissey had purchased a prime beachside property in Montauk with the profits from Morrissey's movie Trash for a mere $200,000. Morrissey's settlement with the estate included the property, now valued at $50 million. But the value of Warhol, the artist, still troubles him. I always think it's so funny when uh, they keep saying the Mao painting. You know, he didn't know who he was, and he couldn't pronounce his name. He probably thought he was the president of China, obviously, but he, he knew nothing about any of these things. He wrote a check to Bob Colicello for 15 years, but he couldn't pronounce Colicello. He called him Bob Coca-Cola, because that he could figure out. I think unless you approach him as uh, this strange person who persisted, was likable, very likable, very sympathetic. I think everybody liked him because they saw there was something wrong there. This is the official Andy Warhol Museum, which opened in his hometown of Pittsburgh, not in his beloved Manhattan, in 1994. Apart from the Norman Rockwell Museum in Massachusetts, this is the only institution dedicated to the work of a single American artist. The 
museum's most important holdings aren't necessarily the artworks, but the extensive archives. These include 600 of Warhol's time capsules, boxes and boxes filled with the detritus of each working month at the factory. It's all worth saving. It almost sounds like Jesus. They're all worth saving, right? The museum also holds 4,000 of Andy's audio tapes. Warhol began obsessively using his tape recorder in 1965. Andy, the would-be machine, was inseparable from his mini-me. I have no memory. Every day is a new day because I don't remember the day before. Every minute is like the first minute of my life. I try to remember, but I can't. That's why I got married, to my tape recorder. My mind is like a tape recorder with one button. Erase. I think that all people who are constantly recording their lives, it's always a hedge against death. It's always a way of saying, this is not going to be lost. I'm going to save it somehow. I don't think we have any other example in history of an artist that collected obsessively everything, including sound. Andy Warhol referred to the tape recorder as his wife and, in fact, carried it with him everywhere. Although you could say the taping was indiscriminate, the more I listen to the tapes, it's all about portraiture and the voice is a portrait. And I think he wanted to make sure that all the different mediums he used got the ultimate out of portraiture. The tapes do reveal how very businesslike he is as well, in a way that he's always directing. Some of these recordings form the basis of Warhol's books, but reading Andy's words on the page is quite different from listening to his voice. I take my little blue brush and I blew it over there and then I take my green brush and I put my green brush and I green it there and then I walk back and I look at it and see if it's spaced right. And then sometimes it's not spaced right so I take my colors and I put another little green over there and if it's spaced right then I leave it alone. There was one tape that literally made my hair stand on end. On it was written, Mama died. You can see in Andy's writing, Mama died. Now, Andy didn't talk about his mother's death at all. It's been played and played and played. So of course we want to know what's on it. Having lived with her son for most of his life, Andy's mother, Julia, had died in 1972, shortly after he'd sent her back to Pittsburgh. He chose not to attend her funeral, nor did he tell a soul about her death. Warhol's Mama Died tape includes a phone call from his brother, John, telling him that their mother had died the night before. This was his response. Don't be too upset, it's just uh, one of those things. I'll send you some money, so uh, you don't have to worry, okay? Don't tell anybody, you know, don't even put in the, actually you shouldn't even put in the paper. Make it the cheapest funeral. You don't have to do it, okay? 
Look, make it the really the cheapest. You just couldn't uh, shouldn't do uh, anything. It doesn't really mean anything to her. So uh, would you do it really the cheapest? Don't even tell anybody, please. You tell Mama better than that, okay? This is Matilla Borce in Slovakia, a small town near the tiny village of Mikova, where Andy's mother and father came from. It wasn't just a gold rush that followed Warhol's death. There was also a rush to claim the man himself. Slovakia won. Though little publicized, this was in fact the first Andy Warhol Museum, opened in 1991. Supported by Andy's brother, John, the museum boasts little more than photocopies or prints of original works. Some of Julius' handiwork, a signed soup can, items of Andy's clothing, a pair of his sunglasses, an old tape recorder, the family christening robe, and some papier-mâché American dollar bills. You're just as likely to find the real Andy Warhol here as anywhere else, hiding behind the genuine fakes. Moscow, 2001. A city now peppered with the same brand advertising as anywhere else. Until last year, however, it had never been exposed to the work of Andy Warhol, the artist who celebrated and immortalized those brands. This is Warhol's first one-man show in Russia, held at the Grand Pushkin Museum even though it was consigned to its splendid marble corridors. on visual imagery is now so embedded in the culture that it's impossible to take him out of the world around us. In attempting simply to reflect his times, he in fact transformed them, hugely influencing the visual landscape, not only of his own century, but also of the new millennium. How can we miss you if you won't go away? What he did has sifted down into the greater culture, let alone high art. And he's the only one, the only one that has that kind of wallop effect. I can't think of a single artist of the post-war period who you could give that same power to. When O.J. Simpson was in his white Bronco being followed by the police around the freeways of Los Angeles, I said, God, I wish Andy were alive to see this. This was his dream come true. One boring image 
being played over and over again on television. The whole country's watching it. It's like a Warhol movie come true. I mean, you know, the news and entertainment have completely merged now, and it's just, it's just what Andy sort of loved and in a way prophesized. Andy's work, in its very immediacy, is forever saying goodbye. If you are focused on now, 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 what is happening to now? It's forever going away. It always has about it a sadness because it's also leaving us, precisely because it is so immediate. It's receding from us the way what is seen in a rearview mirror is constantly re receding from us. He's a kind of uh, mirror man. He just reflect anything around. He would just sort of, you know, let you see yourself somehow. I, I don't know, that's kind of a scary person, isn't it? I always thought, what is interesting if we put one mirror in front of another mirror, what they will reflect. And you, you see, see this, a tunnel to infinity and back. He was the closest thing to a philosophical genius that the art world has produced. How is it possible to have done that improbable stuff all the time, all the time? I mean, you've got to think about that. Pop Art, a CD inspired by the Warhol New York era, is available in the shops from tomorrow. To order, call 0870-1234-344 or click onto channel4.com shop. Go on, make yourself more interesting with the Comedy Elite next on 4, Remna Bird and Fortune.